I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. He lies in a coma. <laughs> can't find the empty man. Can't find the empty man. <laughs> I uh, I know it's because I'm a I'm a literal child, but I had that song in my head the entire movie. Yeah, <laughs> they they can find several. They found the <laughs> Uh Yeah, we're uh, where we love to watch. We movie podcasts. We pick a theme. We do movies over the course of the month around that theme, and if we remember, we compare and contrast. We're in our second week of our April month called Spring Forward Loved craft where we're doing a month of spooky cosmic horror movies we started with one that's kind of almost a faux spooky cosmic horror movie that we hadn't seen uh called something in the dirt which i as a kind of a postscript to that episode where both of us started off going this is like three and a half four stars a lot to like not one of my favorites i think both peter and i left that conversation going maybe it's a four and a half five star movie Mm -hmm. is this is this amazing uh, we were texting about it afterwards. So if you heard last week's episode, uh, that's a, an example of this podcast making us more excited as we talked about a movie. I think that's going to happen here today because this was a movie that, Peter, you and I loved immediately. Mm-hmm. By immediately, I mean when people started talking about it as not a terrible horror movie when it came to HBO Max in October of 2021. And that is David Pryor's The Empty Man, which suffered from a couple things. One, it's called The Empty Man. Which the last horror movie that everyone fucking hated that sounded like that was called The Bye Bye Man. Mm-hmm. And never, as far as I know, never had a critical reappraisal. Um, it was in theaters. It, like, they put it in theaters in October of 2020, which I think was pre – I don't know what, what they were doing there. Like, we're, we're that was like when a random movie would show up in five theaters. Anyways, no one went to see it and – the people that did gave it a terrible cinema – like, people didn't like it. Reviews were bad. People didn't like it. Everyone forgot about it. And, and and the reason that a lot of this was uh, that it was put out in a limited number of theaters, uh, the cut that we have now is uh, – we'll, we'll get to the cut. Perhaps perhaps a compromise cut, whatever, is because the studio hated it and did not, did not particularly care about it. And also, yeah, they, the studio be, ended up being sold to the biggest entertainment company that's ever existed. Yeah, this was the last theatrical release of a 20th Century Fox movie. This was this was the last one that showed in a theater that had 20th Century Fox in the logo. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, it was kind of dumb. I, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this. It was actually like mostly filmed in 2016, 2017, did test screenings in 2018. Uh, the studio went and did a 90-minute cut that no one liked. Like, it... It's not quite the Battle of Brazil, but it has some of the similar, like, what the fuck do we do with this movie? And you're right, Peter. We'll talk about this. Even the cut we have, the director didn't quite know that's what they were putting into into theater. So They didn't send him a screener link on release day. Um, <laughs> he no, he, he, was, he, he, was, he was told it was a rough cut. He was putting together a rough cut, and they just were like, well, fuck it. This has been sitting around. We want to burn this off. 
if someone like there's nothing else showing in theaters, we'll put it in the theater maybe in October, and no one went and saw it, and everyone forgot about it. And so, uh, yeah. Uh, it wasn't until October 2021 that it came on HBO Max, still in the pandemic for a lot of us at home. It was kind of that time where some movies were going to theaters, but people were still kind of getting excited for, oh, shit, they threw something on a streaming service. And it was kind of the talk of Twitter for a week. And and this became that. People were like, oh, this movie got terrible reviews, but it's it's great. It's really good. Yeah. And so I think, Peter, you and I maybe both saved it for Spooktober that year and uh we both came away going maybe you did maybe you didn't yeah i regardless you and i watched it close in close regard and both of us went oh we, we loved it this isn't some oh it's actually better than it looks kind of movie both of us were like holy shit why was this hiding from us why was this hiding why wasn't this talked about as a great lovecraftian cinema i mean you and i follow enough horror nerds that like uh, I mean, Underwater, a movie we covered on the show and a movie I think both of us like, if not love. Mm-hmm. By in this case, if not love, doesn't mean that we're approaching love. It means that love is not on the horizon at all. <laughs> it means we do not love it, but we like it. Is a movie that people were like, ooh, secret Lovecraft movie. And I was like, Peter, you got to see it. So, you know why everyone's saying secret Lovecraft movie. No one said that about this movie until it was on HBO Max. Like, no one talked about this in any of our horror circles um, and it just kind of went to theaters. It disappeared. It was <laughs> rediscovered, and now it makes tons. Uh, it makes it makes a ton of sense that we're covering it. This is, I mean, almost everything we're covering this month. I was really excited about, but yeah, Empty Man is a very recent one that ended up on our both of our best of 2020 release uh, list that we do for the show, and we have been a huge fan of, and we kind of like. We're, it's almost going to be like a mini David Pryor month because next week when we do a few of the Cabinet of Curiosities, the Netflix show episodes, because those are very Lovecraft steeped, we're doing my, – my favorite of those is The Autopsy. So good. Which we're going to cover next week. And I didn't know this when I saw it because David Pryor like didn't stick in my head as a director that I knew – Um when I watched Cabinet of Curiosities last October, but when afterwards when I saw it, I'm like, oh my god, that was so good. And I went back and oh, David Pryor directed that. What else has he done that I've seen? And I'm like, oh yeah, I remember hearing that the guy that did The Empty Man was doing one of the Cabinet of Curiosities and I kind of put the two and two together. So, because the autopsy is amazing. This is amazing. His short film that we watched that we're going to talk about is, is, is pretty good as well. But let's... Uh, so, I mean, he is someone who... Well, let's talk about that. So he uh, he's got to start doing this short film that both you and I watched mm-hmm. called um, AM twelve hundred, mm-hmm. um, which was a kind of a forty five minute film uh, that uh, did some did a few like um, uh, uh, festival runs for short films and some of those things. Um, it was definitely like it's a short film, but I. It had uh, Ray Wise's in it. It has some okay special effects, some good cinematography, shot on film. Like clearly, someone who had some some in that I'm not aware of from looking at his biography into the film industry from someone. I'm assuming a nepo baby of some <laughs> some sort. Um, but um, David Fincher saw his his uh, his short film and said he he is. His exact quote was, when people refer to 
a director's work as a calling card movie, this is what they mean. It the he said the best advice I give to anyone trying to get into the film festival is to make a movie like AM twelve hundred and try to make it at least half as good. Uh, and so he was a huge fan of AM twelve hundred. We'll we'll go right back to AM twelve hundred here in a second. Mm-hmm. But he hired him to do a uh, a documentary on the making of the Social Network that came out at, in 2011. I think it started as a as a Blu-ray or a DVD extra, but it became 95 minutes, and I think it was still released on one of the releases. But um, yeah, but I think it, it also kind of because it's like 100 minutes, and it's called uh, "How Did They Make a Movie Out of Facebook." So he hired him to do that. He still has some relationship with David Fincher. They did a um, – in the middle of the pandemic, there was a video essay series that Netflix did that was produced by um, – that was produced by David Pryor and David Fincher. Mm-hmm. Um, I forget what the name of that is Vor? actually. Or Voir? <laughs> uh, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, so he still has a working relationship with David Fincher, but really, only movie he's made theatrically is is The Empty Man, and that was essentially a four year journey. We'll talk about how he thinks about something. Let's let's Can quickly go really back quickly. Yeah, they, yeah, I was going to say we should a, go back to M twelve hundred. They did have a they did have a prior relationship though, because David Pryor, his like jobber, like making the money job, was making. DVD special features, um, special documentary features for DVDs back when studios were selling a lot of DVDs and they were like, oh, you know how you sell DVDs is having these illustrative yeah. special features. They were kind of copying the Criterion model from back in the laser days. They, they would advertise like, yeah, over three hours of bonus feature. Like yeah. the more hours, the better. No one ever watched one of them. The only – there's very few of them are worth watching. I want to check out David Pryor's work the next time I watch Zodiac. Benjamin Button, um, yeah. uh, 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 what were you just at? Social Network. He also yeah. did one for the Master, Master and Commander, apparently. I wonder if that's still on the Blu-ray. Um, well, that explains it. I guess I missed that. So that's how he kind of got his in in the industry. He was shooting these special features. And how he was paying rent, right? Like, yeah. Um, but I, because uh, it's, it's a reputable job. It's just it's not really something people do as much anymore. And the only time that you and I have ever really talked about one extensively was the two on the Hellboy um, 1 and 2 oh, DVDs. Yeah are really good. Like, clearly, Del Toro, like, spent a lot of time um, putting putting muscle work into explaining his process and, like, sitting yeah. down for FaceTime so that those would be great, and they're both feature length. Other than that, yeah, they're things that a lot of people don't watch or they watch the first 15 minutes ago and go, wow, they spent a lot of time making this movie, huh? And then they move on. Mo- yeah, most of my memories of the, of them are the, I like, the ironic ones, right? Like... One I've talked about with you before that just sticks out is like they re- they produce those great legacy universal horror monster sets, which like you could get a DVD and it had all the Frankenstein movies on it or all the Dracula movies like in, in 2003. And they were great. And I scooped them up. So many of their special features were based on promos for Van Helsing, the film, which is why they were releasing these. Like they would do that a lot. They would release these big special features laid in uh, movies that tied into a recent release. So like um, having um, having <laughs> having like everyone talk about the Frankenstein movie and then go, and that's, or the wolf band and talk about like, that's what we tried to do in Van Helsing. This totally forgotten, terrible movie is so funny to me, but yeah, they, it, it like, I remember there, there are some that like, 
when I put on the thing, I remember that that feature length documentary. Uh, they they are yeah the feature length making of documentary they did for the thing is great. What I think I ended up finding though, Peter, is that. The ones that were good or worth watching or entertaining to watch usually were not for newer released movies because <coughs> they suffered from the fact that they were made before the films came out and had no context to add to how the film was released or critical Received. reviews <laughs> or or anything like that. A lot of times they're making these things without even understanding what the final cut was. So sometimes you ended up with some very ironic special features of people like – like, if you watch a special feature of any, like, poorly released movie from 2002, 2003, I'm sure you have a lot of people talking about, like, their goal to create one of the greatest movies of the generation or a great movie within the genre. And then everyone knows, like, it was a 0% on Tomato Meter and everyone fucking hated it or something like that. Like, that's somewhat ironic and funny. But the ones that were really good were the ones that were really looking back. And then you had people like Del Toro and Fincher who were a lot more, I think, zoomed in with, like – I am not trying to make a promo piece. I am trying to actually make like some record of the work that we're doing to make this movie in a way that like people who are film school dropouts or who are obsessed with the filmmaking process could get excited about, which is why when Fincher's movies came out, I tended to watch all the special features. I wa I listened to all the commentaries because he wasn't focused on he was just very like keen into like Oh, this is like a filmmaking school in a box. Here's yeah. how I did the shot. Here's what I was thinking. This is why the cinematography is so important, stuff like that. So I'm not surprised that like Fincher would look to hire someone like a David Pryor because he obviously has a craft and cares about movie making himself, as we saw later on. And so him producing these these special features makes a lot of sense and why he would connect with him. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's and it completely makes sense because when you connect um AM 1200 with Fincher as an inspiration because in, in in certain ways Empty Man doesn't feel that Fincherian. Um, it's got some it's got some camera work touches that feel a little bit like him, but AM 1200 absolutely feels a lot like feels, it. it does. It feels like he's kind of mimicking the style, sort of a modern digital noir, um, inky shadows, um, men in corporate men in, in in sort of corporate worlds and corporate dress being kind of dragged through the muck while still wearing their ties. Like that yeah. kind of Fincher vibe and thematic resonance is definitely there. Um, I have to say there's one, one sadness here is that you and I watched a, the YouTube rip of it, which looks like shit. Um, famously the lower your resolution um, in for uh, SD versus HD, the worse uh, blacks look like HD, yeah. like uh, shadows. A lot of this takes place at night, and it looks like uh, some very modern cubist art. <laughs> Just squares <laughs> and like all the, over the screen. Yeah, and like the the daytime stuff, I was like, this is tolerable. What was Aaron talking about? And then you get to the nighttime stuff, yeah. and you're like, mm, not so much. So I can quickly run through the plot because hold on, do you know do you know how many views on YouTube the when I was done it showed the view count, and I'm like, okay, maybe we didn't watch. An official version. 13,000. 
775. Oh. I'm assuming since you watched it after me, it was 776. <laughs> if I would have seen that, I would have looked for another version. Apparently, there might be a better version on Vimeo. Yes, that's that's what so, I've heard. So we may, we may have messed up. This is this is not this is not a within the woods thing where it was like a dragged through the muck uh, print no, that it's, it's ends just, up getting uprezzed through copy to a VHS and then downrezzed on, onto YouTube where you and I were like, I think I can see. Yeah. A man. <laughs> I can see a jaw. That's Bruce Campbell. I'm pretty sure that's a house. <laughs> oh no, never mind. That was a foot. Uh, yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's more like, oh, I bet this looks amazing, and instead yes. I'm just annoyed. And it's, it's so it's like, it looks expensive, even with the shitty. It looks expensive. Yeah, it looks like you start watching a terrible like YouTube riff. Yeah. But yeah, it's essentially about this guy. Who uh, is like what a two thousand eight movie? <laughs> He's people are getting laid off from the bank that he works, and he um, he sees Ray Wise in this bar. And he's like, and Ray Wise is like, you know, you're gonna get fired next. And he's like, here's what I would do. Here's all these accounts. You know, you could just take the money out of those accounts, and yeah, they'd find you. But like, just leave, leave the country, go to Mexico, go to Bermuda, go somewhere else. Like, you're gonna be fine. And this is kind of cut in between him driving on a road and getting really freaked out when a cop starts following him for a second. You're like, why? He's not speeding. What's going on? And he's also playing with the radio station trying to find something to listen to. He hears like one weird like preacher station on AM 1200 or later on in there and there's not that much. So it's like kind of that like, again, sweaty, tense, almost like beginning of psycho vibe. This person's stolen some money. It, it is. Are, it's, it's a psycho thing for sure. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, there's a, cop that, the there's a cop that almost pulls him over and almost catches him, and then he pukes yeah. on the side of the road because he was so nervous about it. Yeah. Um, but eventually he gets through, and he uh, hears something on the radio that sounds like someone broadcasting, f- like, f- not from a radio station, but basically say there's been an injury. Please come to this station and <laughs> save us, send help, send the police. And he happens to kind of get – he's using – he hasn't used MapQuest yet. That MapQuest was 100 percent around in 2008. But this guy is a big city banker and he doesn't need MapQuest. Uh, but he, he's, <laughs> he's, following, he's following a map and he gets a little bit lost and he ends up driving past on this kind of dirt road, uh, the, the, the radio station, AM 1200. And he um, – Says, sees that the gates open, sees like there may have been, which is a little odd, but he decides to drive past, but eventually comes to end of road. And then when he turns back around, the car dies uh, right in front of uh, AM 1200 and he he gets out and then sees like a figure in the distance and kind of decides to hide in his car and then runs up into the radio station. In the radio station, he meets Neelix from Star Trek Voyager. I assume oh, yeah. playing a different. This has character. a good cast. It, it all, has a good cast. The three principal act or the three principal actors in this: Ray Wise, um, Neelix, <laughs> Neelix uh, from Star Trek Voyager, uh, and uh, the the lead guy Eric Lang or Eric Lange. I'm guessing it's Lang. Um, <laughs> Wait, he's not Neelix from Star Trek. Go ahead, you get the other guy. A- Eric Lang, Neelix. the main guy, the bald guy, is a really cool character actor. Um, he's been in a good amount of of, of movies, uh, but I most know him from. Um, he is one of the more, the villain figures in Brand New Cherry Flavor. Um, oh, okay. He has a he has a, a, a very convincing wig um, in that show, so you, you might not recognize him right away. And this, he's he's uh, naturally bald. Uh, also funny in The Empty Man, he is in photographs and maybe some quick shots. He plays the father of Amanda. 
Um, okay. Which is just a, a thing, the only thing I recognized because I watched these in, in that particular order. No, he, uh, so sorry, it's, it's, it's not the weird alien guy on Voyager. It's the weird alien guy on Enterprise. Of course, our favorite character, Flox. I've seen a whole season of Enterprise. I didn't know. I, I saw there's no way his name's Flox. Didn't remember it. I've seen almost as much Enterprise as Voyager. People remember Neelix. No one remembers Flox, but that's played by John Billingsley. And he's kind of sitting bloodied on the floor. And when when our lead runs in and there's like this kind of discussion about what's going on do you need help and he starts saying like weird crazy like lovecraftian shit until finally he gets killed by our our banker uh our banker guy uh and then again this is such like a well like there's 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 like shit carved into the door, but also he starts hearing the radio signals that are like pulsing in his head and he eventually kills him and brings the body down into the basement and starts hacking him up over this like weird well that's formed um, while he like keeps grabbing his head as we hear like like muffled sounds of a radio station. Uh, he cuts up uh, this this other guy that's in there. Uh, and then he throws the body parts down this well and we see this great effect of like this eye that lo- that takes up the whole um, circu- circular or circumference of the well, and then the eye moves away, and we see a giant mouth open up. He throws the body parts down the well to be eaten, and then he goes up and broadcasts a new message to send help to radio station um, twelve hundred. It kind of has a little bit of an end of Return of the Living Dead vibes too, like you know, send, send more paramedics. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's a great little twisty, like you know. Uh, a bizarre radio signal sending people who are then, you know, kill it, are getting like commanded by the radio station equipment powered by some weird Lovecraftian under God yeah. to cut up people and throw their body parts down a well and then ask for the, another person to come. It, it's great. It's, yeah. it's fun. It's a like, really it's good, good. It's really good horror short. Good on yeah. atmosphere. It's good on that mystery. Um, and, uh, and I'd love to see a cleaned up copy of it. Um, yeah. Really quickly, just the reason I wanted to cover this is, well, because not only did I know it had, um, it was David Pryor's other thing, and we're about to cover basically his three His whole filmography. Yeah. His three major works. A short film, a theatrical, well, minorly, but theatrical release, and a an episode of uh, Guillermo del Toro's, like, director-forward horror show. Like, we're covering all yeah. of that this month. Because um, we, we like this guy. We want to see him work again. And we... Um, the reason I really like this, this other than just, you know, general prowess and sort of being like, oh, it's cool that that guy like knew what he wanted early on. It's yeah. sort of like following for Christopher Nolan where you're like, it's not the best Christopher Nolan movie. You'd have to be a little a little cuckoo to say that. But like it, it shows you what what's what's to come. And what's funny is that this very much feels like a dry run towards what he would do with the empty man 12 fucking years later. So what's interesting well, eight, eight years later. Eight, yes. I mean, you know, being released. Um, what's interesting... I agree. I thought that was kind of weird that, like, he, he made this movie. It was well-received. David Fincher's like, this is how you do it. And then he didn't get a job for eight years, basically. And, and it's amazing is, like, you look up biographies in, of them and it'll be like, after making, like, you know, these, these uh, you know, studio uh, documentaries, he made a short film that was well-received and David Fincher said this. 
Anyways, in 2016, like, yeah. it jumps – every single biography that I read of him jumps over those eight years. And I was like, well, did he get out of Hollywood? Did, did he have a bunch of failed projects? I couldn't find any information there. Well, I mean, he was doing – we know he was doing special features because in between that is when he did, like, the uh, – how did they make a movie out of Facebook, like, documentary for – Yeah, but you don't spend that kind of money on a, on a short short film without being, like – What's the next short film? What's the next so, major I, this feature? Is, this sounds like a sad story. It's not meant to be. But I had a, a friend in high school who's a couple years older than me and he uh, wanted to make movies. His parents – he was the young oldest of two kids. His parents were uh, you know, somewhat well off um, and he had left and uh, – I mean well off for Bismarck, North Dakota. Um, but like well enough that they're paying for their son to go to film school in L.A. Right. Um, and uh, he came back after a couple years and I was a senior in high school and he showed me this like short film that he had made to go around the festival circuit after like, you know, being in film school for a few years and trying and like the short film. He's like, oh, yeah, had a budget of forty thousand dollars, which in 19 in 2001 just seemed like insane. He got, you know, again, this is not, it's not critical. He got it from his parents um, to to make it. And it looked amazing. Like, he shot on film. He hired a crane. Like, all these sort of things. Like, it was about, like, someone going up to heaven and it being, like, a very corporate world, which I feel like is something that's been touched a lot more now. But, like, in the, you know, post-Matrix, post-Office Space 2000, it, you know, I'm sure it was a little more fresh than that concept seems now in our year of our Lord 2023. <laughs> now that but, we've got um, multiple TV shows was about that concept yeah but it was it was it was good and it looked amazing and it was shot in like 35 millimeter it had crane shots like real actors all these sort of things and there was like a point where i was like oh i wanted to go to school to make movies too and he then you know spent i still actually uh he, i just actually texted with him uh, a few like a six, six or seven months ago he's like doing great he lives in la He's like an assistant director, production assistant, all the thing. But like he had a lot of means and a lot of um, connections and was making short films that were going to real festivals and doing well. And like he never he never got to make his own like writing, directing movies with a studio system. He kind of had those kind of like second unit assistant director jobs and he makes a good living and he loves it and everything else. But like that was a little bit to me like as I even got older, like, oh, like. Man, it's hard to like if you want to make movies, yeah. everyone does. That that combined with like watching old episodes of Inside the Actors Studio and they would do the questions you they would pan through the audience and people would ask questions and you're like, "Oh, this was shot 10 years ago." And this is a person going to, you know, this film this, you know, prestigious film school to be I've never heard of any of these people. I've never None of these people ended up doing anything in yeah. the next 10 years. How is me, a person with no means from Bismarck, North Dakota, who wants to make movies, like going – like that's a – that's something that I should pursue, pursue as a uh, – or like making movies or into movies or doing this podcast, something I should pursue as a fun thing that I like doing for a hobby as opposed to trying to make a career of it because – like, I, I don't have the means to be that successful. And your odds are... Or, or to are keep failing. Tough. the fact Or to keep failing. Like, you have to fail, too. You have to have the money to go, like, someone's paying my rent. Someone's doing these things. Someone's paying for my college. A lot a lot of times, anyways. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and the fact, in, in some sense, you know, the fact that David Pryor made The Empty Man. 
the movie became a cult hit immediately. A bunch of directors surrounded surrounded him, circled the wagons around him to be like, this is a guy, this is one of her own. He got fucked by the studio. He got fucked yep. by the Fox-Disney merger. And, yep. uh, or purchase, I should say more accurately. Um, and then uh, the studio kind of kicked him out in the wind. And as we haven't gotten to yet, but like the MT Man doesn't even have a DVD or a Blu-ray release. Like it's, yeah, we're going we're gonna to get, we're gonna get to all that. Like it's very much a movie that the studio wanted to forget. And this is a guy that got to, to, to like, in a sense, despite studio interference, he got to make this big, crazy dream project of his that's kind of cobbled together from a comic book. A book that he loved called Superstition that's about tulpas. Um, yeah. And uh, this short AM1200, which you're right, Aaron. Like, it's, it's amazing you have to make anything. And the, the, the AM1200, like, the thematic connections there are obvious, like, once you you can you you've seen uh, empty man right? i mean between empty man and and, and uh, the autopsy too he seems to have a very specific like yeah yeah which and is great yeah. Make, let him keep making this because it's good every time but. yeah um which by the way you should read that michael shea short story that uh the autopsy is based on um it's really good um, maybe i will by next week peter it's I did a more short homework. story it'll take a lot less than all the reading you told me you were this. going full ethan warren for this episode you only went half ethan warren I read more <laughs> um i went two-thirds ethan warren um i went full ethan warren let me tell you it's pretty dark pretty um, dark out here it's, it's dark out here um but so uh when we get to the tower right we're talking when he's talking to the main character is talking to this um the, the the you know the technician um he's talking to the broadcaster he's basically the broadcaster is describing that we reached out into the abyss and the abyss reached out to us and the idea is that um communication is this tool that we use and we take for granted yeah. and we see and it's it's a far more literal version than what the empty man has. The, the empty man is using the term antenna as a symbol, um, symbolic sort of term. This is specifically about like in a literal sense, you reached out to the abyss, the abyss reached out to you and you're not really sure whether your call to get on the radio that day was the abyss calling to you and saying, we need to make a connection or you reaching out to the, the middle of nothing to the nothingness um, was um, what awoken the abyss to your existence. And it doesn't particularly matter because once that connection is made and once it has gotten this, this darkness has gotten its hooks into you, it has control. It has taken over your body. It has robbed you of your agency. Um, and you are now, you are now, the, the message has been infected into your brain. Yeah. Um, there's a few cute touches in this that like are straight up shots that he would do again at Empty Man, like showing a map and then slowly zooming in an aerial yep. view of the map until they show you an aerial view of a highway. That, yep. that shit is so sick. It works for me every time. I haven't seen yeah. it in a lot of movies, but it works for me every time. Um, it's clearly an expensive ex- effect shot that requires like a helicopter and and, yeah. and, and a lot of a lot of time. Um, but uh, you know, and there's some um, there's some some like cutesy sort of touches that would be pulled in Empty Man again. But largely, the connection here is sort of cosmic horror, uh, the thematic idea that that we as people can be. Um, we as people can be receivers and um, broadcasters of energies. 
Well, and we're just not prepared for what's and we're not yeah. very very specific to all actually all three of his movies like the autopsy the the Lovecraftian monster in there is very much like literally says like uh, you I come to worlds people are not prepared for me and like it's, it's um, that's, that's so yeah he 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 has that that narrative thing this also really quickly I mentioned Return of the Living Dead but this actually really also reminds me of a Lovecraft story that I just tried to look up and I forget the name it's one of his very early ones where there's like an archaeologist that are digging out something and there is a phone and like it's a they're, they they're the last thing that happens is I think the monster says on the phone to come come everything's okay like come here and it's like you know as the reader that that's the monster mm-hmm. um, I'm trying to remember which which one that was I, I honestly can't remember and I tried to look at uh, Lovecraft archaeologist I, it's not I maybe it's the nameless city maybe. I don't know. It was when I was going through Lovecraft stories in like order. I had a book that had them all collected. It was the first of his stories I remember going like, "Oh shit, that was great." <laughs> After a, <laughs> takes a little bit, but you get there. Uh, anyways, maybe it was the Nameless City. Um, but anyway, I, I also you and I I think both just took a shotgun blast to the face of Lovecraft short stories. You'd be like, "That one wasn't very good." And I mean, like, that I literally was one of the best just, things I've ever read. <laughs> I mean, that was literally what I was reading. I'm like. I, I just had the book and was reading. And then I also realized, like, I switched to the audiobook. The people who do the Lovecraft podcast mm-hmm. um, did a full audiobook. You know how they're narr- the people they have that do those nar- narrations? Mm-hmm. It's like a 55 hour. I switched to that because I end up enjoying it more because I feel like those stories being read to you in that specific, like, tone where it's hitting the words, it's kind of like Shakespeare. Like, you get more from Shakespeare if you hear actors doing the lines as opposed to reading in your head because they're plays. And I feel like Lovecraft stories work better with creepy narrations that know how to hit the arcane language more than me trying to read it in my head and get through the plot. So, I, I read probably about, like, 200 pages of that 600-page book just reading just one story after another and then they release that audiobook and I'm like, fuck yeah. <laughs> and do that instead. Uh, anyways... So, that's how David Pryor came to be, how The Empty Man came to be. I didn't know it was based on a comic book series. Peter, even when you sent me a picture of the book that you ordered, you're like, hey, I'm going to try to read the book. I assumed it was a book. And I'm like, I'm sorry, bud. I'm reading books for the movie two weeks from now. I'm reading Annihilation, trying to read the whole Southern yeah. Reach trilogy. I don't have time for another book. But it turned out, not a book. is a graphic uh, novel. Or a comic book series, six a comic book miniseries, uh, released by Boom Entertainment in like 2014. I yeah, believe. yeah. I it, it was uh was gonna say is it, it was a original comic book that uh written by Colin Bunn, who has since become sort of um sort sort of very prolific to a good amount of fame because of a few of his uh, a few of his horror series uh, Harrow County Bone Parish and then he wrote a Magneto run people really like he he's written like if you look at if you look up his name on Comicsology he's written a ton of Marvel and DC like he he he's, loved he's, he's, he's very that. prolific he's yeah. a good he's a good interview he was on one of the Colors of the Dark or one of the the, the those guys, the Rebecca McKendry uh, podcast, he was on one of those, and he, he's a really good interview. I, I really like him. Yeah, so, and the comic book, though, I read the first two, so the first miniseries that came out in 2014 is mm-hmm. six issues. 
And I got through the first two issues and I'm like, am I reading the right comic book? <laughs> like, I, I wasn't sure because it felt so disconnected from The Empty Man. I didn't know what to expect. And I found out, no, I am reading the right uh, comic book. And really, like you said, there are some things that are pulled from this, but it is in no way an adaptation of this no. comic book. Now, funnily enough, the writer of the comic book after this movie came out or he saw the script because he, he actually worked with David Pryor a lot on like, ooh, you should do that. Like there was some collaboration in like what he was doing with like the bits and pieces of this story. Um, but that he kind of worked this – the movie into his Empty Man comic book series. So technically, however much you care about this because it, it cannot matter at all to you <laughs> if you want it to. That it, uh, you can just like the movie. But technically, the way it's set up um, in retrospect is that the Empty Man movie is a prequel to this comic book series which, which i think i think which i think works a little bit it does it, it, it works a little bit it, it doesn't it's not like a it's not a, a hook line and sinker but that's largely because of like tonal differences like one is intended to be more of a rip roaring we're gonna stop a, a force of evil comic book and one is um a sort of helpless lovecraftian i am i am stuck in the muck of something that's so much bigger than me that i'll never possibly understand movie and it's a movie that's very like hopeless and alienating uh pretty much start to to end yeah the comic books have more have heroes the comic books have have like set characters that have setbacks and such but like You're getting into a world where the world has recognized that it's a virus. Yeah, I mean, so (laughs) it's funny because the movie actually reminds me more thematically of – I just went through the Alan Moore um, Courtyard Mm -hmm. uh, Neonomicon um, Providence series and it reminds me a little bit more of his protagonist in those like – Yes. Like movies of like I don't know what's going on and discovering more horrors as you go along on these like little mysteries where like – the Empty Man, the con- – so how far did you finish the first miniseries? I finished uh, the first two books. So one is just called The Empty Man and the next one I believe is called Recurrence and then Manifestation. I didn't I didn't have time to get to yet. Oh, OK. So, yeah. So um, the, the first series is really just – yeah, it's a guy from the FBI, a guy from the CDC who are paired together – or sorry, a lady from the FBI and a guy from the CDC are paired together to – Solve the mystery of this empty man killers because people are killing themselves and writing the empty man did it. I think it's the end of the second issue where someone finally writes the empty man did it on something. I'm like, oh, okay, this the, this is definitely the movie, but it's the only thing that seems connected. The empty man made um, me do it, yeah. The empty man made me do it, yeah. Um, And yeah, they're tracking as a virus. There's some kidnapped kids. There's an evil preacher, which I was like, oh, it's probably the church from the empty man, Pontifex. (laughs) It's not. It's its own other like Southern Baptist as opposed to like Scientology type New Age thing that we see in the movie, which we'll get to in a second. They even say in the Um, comic book, there's at least a dozen cults that rose up about the empty man sort of covering themselves for like. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you in retrospectively, like. Yes. uh, 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 covering themselves, but yeah, they um, they're saying essentially that uh, this one called has these kids. It's it does eventually introduce the idea that there's a transmitter, like a person in a coma, mm-hmm. who is basically receiving the empty man and then broadcasting 
that out to the world because the Empty Man, as you find out later, wants to remake is basically like a, a, a Lovecraftian or just outer world monster in from a hell dimension that wants to remake the world as image. There's some actual physicality of the Empty Man later that manifests as these monsters, but also the idea that, like, if you're affected by him, if you're infected by the Empty Man, you can also see that the world is degrading. And so I was – candidly, I was kind of iffy on the series. Like, I didn't really – like, I didn't hate it. I thought it got in- more interesting towards the end. But I, I, I only ended up going and doing the two sequel series um, – because they were four issues each and short, and I'm like, I, I read, I, I burned through this miniseries in like 20 minutes. I can, I can, they're not, it's not dense like fucking Providence, where it's like this is reading a fucking. I, yeah, novel. I took longer than that because I, I really like the art of the series, but like, yeah, it's not, it's not. You dense. love pictures. You're a picture guy. A picture like a no words in sense. music. You like no words in music. You would prefer no words in books. I don't think you like words. Why do you do a podcast, Peter? It's all know. words. I should have, I should have done a series of paintings to express how I feel about movies. <laughs> you just you just painted four stars. <laughs> yeah, that was a pretty good one. Four bags of popcorn. It's a five bagger. It's a five bagger. Um, yeah. So I I I thought it was just okay. It seemed like you might have liked it maybe a little bit more than me. What I did love is recurrence and manifestation. Even though the last one manifestation ends on a big cliffhanger that they've never gone back to, um, because My it actually busy. Wor- <laughs> the guy's busy because it works as like so at basically at the end of the miniseries, the empty man is just out in the world more like it's basically a, a contagion they can't control. What I liked about the rest of the series is it kind of plays a little bit like the last issue of Providence or like what you imagine was happening in, in the mouth of madness between the time Sam Neill goes to the loony bin. And when he comes out and the world is just destroyed where like the world is literally falling apart from this, like evil Lovecraftian apocalypse. Like, mm-hmm. like they show, you know, scene after scene of like whole schools being uh, destroyed or whole office buildings, like, Everyone kills themselves and everyone writes, the empty man made me do it. And, like, everything's getting weird and cults are, like, ravaging the streets trying to find people affected by it. Like, I love I, – I actually ended up really loving it by the end because it, it has a really good depiction of society breaking down because of the influence of a Lovecraftian type god. Like, mm-hmm. so, you know, imagine the, like – you never hear, see a Lovecraft story where Cthulhu comes and then the chaos that descends. This is almost that you know, yeah. for eight issues. And I, I loved it. And and I think there's basically two connections. And we're past the spoiler wall for all of this. So yeah, that happens at minute now. one, baby. At the end of the film, The Empty Man. So if we're treating that as, you know, the, the original story that the other uh, comic books riff off of, which you don't have to. Um there's uh, the promise is that the main character James his his journey as a tulpa has has come to uh, come to a conclusion. All the plans that the cult has made uh, have come to fruition. He will successfully become what they want, which is uh, uh, the next stage of communication with their god. And earlier in the movie, one of the cultists says, um, "Yeah, like yeah, man, like everything is going to be deconstructed. Everything is going to be f- yep." It's going to be a fucking bloodbath, is what he says. 
Yeah. That, that and the comics of, were kind of seeing that, essentially. Yes. And it made me think of a few things. One is that in Call of Cthulhu, um, which some of this is racially motivated and, and H.P. Lovecraft is not liking uh, people of color, but he sort of treats this sort of um, uh, uh, some of the chaos of the outside world as like a sign that the forces of chaos and Cthulhu coming in is like sort of creeping into the world. But there's Which is also what like every Christian apocalypse cult yes. to. And there's a promise that there's almost going to be like a Tower of Babel crash kind of moment where everything goes to chaos. Everybody, you're eating your neighbor. Like every type of assault is happening out, out openly in the streets. Even yeah. like everybody is murdering everybody. And I've seen a, a limited number of depictions of this in apocalyptic um, storytelling. Um, but it is a promise that's in Call of Cthulhu and some of the other mythos stories. Yeah. And it, as you say here, like, I'm excited to read the third story. I'll probably do it after we're done recording. Yeah. Um, the one, the one uh, cosmic horror story I do think, it's also in comic books that expresses this well, is all of the threats in the nameless where oh, yeah. in, in the nameless, they're showing what's going to happen if the deity wins. Yeah. If the presence wins. And some of that shit is hard to look at. Um, it is yeah, well, very It's gross. also like, <laughs> I mean, besides like the Providence thing and some other stuff, it's also like, like the reason that I loved Event Horizon was primarily because of that weird video. Like, yeah. there was a lot of other stuff I liked, but that idea of like that weird like devolution into like – almost like a literalized version of what you know people said hell was like yeah. and seeing that depicted on in like some sort of art or on screen was like oh i want to see more of that it was so creepy it got under your skin it was unnerving and like this way that you can't describe and at least when i saw it when it came out which i was 14 15 i'd never seen anything like that and so this you know this really does do that it does feel somewhat connected to the empty man it i mean it, even the sequel books to the original miniseries came out before the movie because the movie sat on the shelf for a very yeah. long time. But like it is that idea of, okay, so if in the movie the empty man, the first tulpas created that finally gets the transmission larger um, in the miniseries, there's all these cults that have their own either tulpas or trans – not tulpas necessarily, but transmitters that are like expanding the signal and, and getting bigger. Like it's almost like and you know a radio station. You have more satellite dishes. The larger it gets and by these last two books, it is just completely remaking the world bit by bit in its own image. And like that's some great creepy horror imagery for, for eight books. Like I fucking love it. It was great. Yeah. And also the last the last book's my favorite. I hope you get to those last four. Yeah, days. I'm I'm excited to get to it. But yeah, I like that you drew on Providence. Um and um just the the Alan Moore uh Cthulhu mythos shit is so fucking good. And the images so in there are horrifying. It's a horrifying uh couple a couple of comics. <laughs> yeah. Um but uh, what's interesting is James's manifestation number 14. And does that mean one through 13 didn't work or he's just the one they're fucking with right now. And they've got 13 in the backyard. <laughs> like you, you well, no. So I think, I think they are saying, we'll get to that in the movie. I think they are saying it didn't work. Cause they, they have stories of like, yeah. Hey, and we previously fucked up and like, we gave this person too much of a blank slate and it didn't work to connect to the transmitter. Like they, it, in some ways, it does really connect back well to AM 1200 
thematically, not canonically, but because it's like we needed to make the right Tulpa whose frequency was able to connect with the Empty Man, which is also why they're saying, um, you know, when the guy in the Himalayas, like, becomes a transmitter for the Empty Man, they notice that, like, it happens once every 500 years if you're lucky because you they have to hit someone who's on the right frequency to – basically project his message as an antenna and so that's why they not wanting to wait for the next random person to get in contact that meets the frequency they tried to build their own and why he's manifestation 14 is that like even in making their own tulpa they needed to get the frequency right and he wasn't he was an experiment and now the yeah too happy didn't work too sad didn't work like too blank slate didn't work and like they talk about like here's all the ingredients we put in um, to you, but what's also insane, and we'll get to this in the movie, is that I like two thirds of the movie, or at least half the movie, is the implanted memories of this person. Like you actually like come into the movie about halfway into everything you see, which is like it's, it's fantastic. I something it's I so love good. about the movie. Everything yeah. that is boring and tropey about that movie was done on purpose. And at the end of the movie, they're like, yeah, a sad alcoholic cop who lost his wife and child and left the force. And now he does, he does private detective work on the side. Like, yeah, dude, like that's the story of like a thousand DTV, like Nicolas yeah. Cage, Dean Cain movies. I love Nicolas Cage, don't get me wrong, but he does slum it. Um, but the like that is the plot of a million bad noir which, stories. Which, like, they, which they say they're like, oh, they just pulled all these little tropes to create this person that based on movies and, and, and fiction would seem to be the right combination to, to connect and transmit the empty. Because it was both a psychic experiment but also like a creative workshop for this group it's it's yeah. all, we'll, we'll get into more it's so details. it's so good we'll, we'll, we'll get into we details more i want to talk about the third source of influence really quickly because i didn't read it so i can't talk about it in detail and then we, we should get into the meat of things yeah let's do it. um so we've been using throwing around the word tulpa in here and i'm not gonna pretend like i knew what the word tulpa was before 2020 when i watched this movie capital of oklahoma oh yeah tulpa <laughs> Tulpa Homa. Um, <laughs> um, a, tul- a Tulpa myth is something that's worth Googling. There's, there's, a, you know, obviously, like, it's something that's worth, like, going through the Wikipedia rabbit hole on. It's also, like, the last podcast on the left, I think, d- covered the Tulpa myth. Like, it's, it's, it's a cool bit of, of, um, a culture building their own, um, like, myth to, uh, get a point across. But, Cultures often build those myths to get a point across, but it turns into something kind of scary as time goes on and it kind of becomes divorced. So there's a Buddhist myth about uh, the tulpa and what it is, is a um, it's thought plus concentration plus time equals flesh. So it's the idea that through through concerted mental effort, you can make a change on the world. Um, and you can in particular that people can be created through that change. Um and it's it's sort of a Buddhist mysticism concept. It's not mainstream bu- Buddhism, um, but this this sort of concept was turned into a 1970s um, sh- uh, story that um, uh, David Pryor loved called Superstition. And I, tell me if this sounds familiar to you, Aaron. Um, so a group of nerds, uh, psychics, and scientists, and yada yada, they get together. And they say, let's do an experiment. And they start um, creating a person. 
They say he's going to be a, we want to do a seance, but someone who never existed. So they go back. They say that this person served under this person. We made sure that there was no human being by that name that served under this person in the Civil War. They they copied all these details, made some details like sort of mismatch so that it doesn't actually connect with some sort of ghost out of reality. Really make sure that they're creating something original and not just talking to a ghost from the past. They keep adding details and throughout the, the, the rest of this horror story superstition, the, the creature starts to become realer and realer and realer to the point that the creature, uh, this man, this ghost, starts to appear in, like, historical literature. Like, they're, they're trying to create this creature, didn't create this creature in a vacuum. The universe bent around their creation of a tulpa and made him real. It, accessory details were there. Reality wove into their story in such a way that, in a way... By introducing this chaos factor into reality, this this thought form into reality, reality just bent around it and and ma- mangled around it, um, and then yeah, it be- the, the creature becomes realer and realer, um, which you know obviously violates what they originally originally wanted in some sense. Um, does that sound familiar? Uh, yeah, that sounds that sounds awesome. Uh, yeah, sound it reminds familiar? me. Of, I, yeah, a little bit. It reminds me of the titular uh, Marley and Marley and Me. I believe it was created as a. <laughs> It's that I believe Marley um, is that's a direct, it's a direct uh, illusion direct creation illusion. <laughs> it's all it's all it's implied <laughs> that Marley was a tulpa. No, I um I kind of want to check out this book. I just was like I was adding it. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't have sounds... time. I, I read I heard about this book like it's two days. it's four hundred pages. I'm already reading three books. <laughs> I read a comic book. Then I read another comic book, a third comic book, and I'm reading three other books unnecessarily, but because I'm excited about it, I can't read this right now. Okay, yeah. just go on hold. I'm gonna... But but yeah, so the 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 idea is that David Pryor pulled from various sources. He pulled and then he pulled from the comic book his short story. And then he made a short film. Yeah, <laughs> and then beginning he... too, which we'll talk about. Yeah, and uh now he uh was in his and then uh, we we get to the point where the empty man can exist. Um Yeah, well actually and really quickly though, as we alluded to was released in theaters as a rough cut. There's no Blu-ray. There is a version that has like 30, like 45 minutes, two hours and 15 minutes. There's a three-hour version. There's commentaries he's recorded. He did all this color correcting for the 4K release. Uh, All that exists somewhere. And uh, we've never seen it. And David Pryor will say in any interview that he hopes someone please buy the rights from 20th Century Fox and release it because all the stuff is made. Like he did color correction. Like he did color correction for the 4K release. Did commentary. It's, assembled his three-hour actual cut that wasn't like holy shit. No, that was a working version. You released it to where theaters. <laughs> That's the best place to release it. But yeah, this um, is also yeah. a movie that once you cross the two-hour and fifteen-minute mark, it might as well be a three-hour movie. Like this is a a a intellectual commitment. It's a emotional commitment. Like you might it might as well be a two forty-five or a two. Yeah, I mean the movie is a, like a four and a half five-star movie as it exists. So it's not like I'm saying like it feels in complete i would never have felt that it was incomplete knowing that and as long as the 45 minutes falls more in the middle to the <laughs> to the ending i'm gonna be very excited if it's 45 more minutes of him chasing down his <laughs> ex-lover's daughter's 
ghost stuff. That stuff is good, but I don't need like 45 minutes more. We, we don't need more sausage making. We need more sausage no. is the point. Yeah. That's that's always our philosophy. Give us more sausage. Give us the meat. Why don't you? Yes. You know who can give us the meat? The Scream impossible in meat? about a year and a half? <laughs> oh, I meant the empty man. Oh, the empty man. Yeah, he can give he's us He's got the meat. The meat. He's, yeah. he's so empty, He get, he's giving away his meat for free. Yeah, it's like impossible. It's impossible burger meat, but it's because <laughs> it's empty. <laughs> meat. It's also impossible because it, you know, it's it's it, it, reality uh, had to bend a, around. It's a, yeah, he's a man made of hair. Yeah, all hair. All right, we're gonna talk about the empty man right after these quick commercial music breaks. Right after this ad from the Pontifex Institute. <laughs> I wish we could get them. Feels like there's so many songs with man in the title. Empty, empty man. <laughs> I want to be a an empty man. man. <laughs> <laughs> you're doing something. You're doing. You're doing fucking bloodhound gang. Uh, yeah. So the movie begins with a essentially a short film that is probably one of the scariest parts of this movie. Like actually, like freaky. It's it's a and straight ahead horror. It's a straight ahead horror short. It could be divorced from the rest of the movie and, and be fine. Well, and for a while you kind of forget what it had to do. Like until they introduce the like at the tw- twenty minutes to the end, you're like, okay, that was like thematically relevant to a guy, what the empty man does, and we're seeing it like because we see day one, day two, day three. We're getting a look at there, and we don't realize like. It's not just a look into what happens when you've been exposed to the empty man. It is a important part that will come, like a critical part uh, that will come later on. But I, it I is, will say, someone people were complaining about how this feels. Like I wish the whole movie was in uh, Bhutan. I wish that the whole movie felt like that. Or um, the Bhutan stuff doesn't have anything to do with the main movie. The second one is kind of worth ignoring because people just weren't paying close enough attention. The first yep. one. It's funny because once you get through the first part, they've established blowing in the tube summons the the creature, this sort of what the creature will look like. And then what the, the three first, days happen. Yeah. The first act of the movie, if not the second act, is essentially just like, hey, that happened to those guys. You don't want that to happen to you, which is a pretty traditional horror thing. Yeah. It's just that it usually isn't the first 20 minutes of a movie. It's usually... Five, well, and it, it is so like it has a lot of great scares. There's a lot of great weird stuff that you're like, what does that have to do? So I understand that. But if you want, you know, your entire movie like that, may I recommend a movie called Seven Years in Tibet? <laughs> Not a very good movie. Is that the one where Brad Pitt's a Nazi? Uh yeah, that's the one. <laughs> <laughs> uh. But yeah, yeah I, but I, I he think... finds peace in Tibet. I saw it in theaters in 1997. I thought it was the worst movie I'd ever seen. <laughs> like maybe it's better. Yeah. Then, uh, but I didn't. But let me let me walk before. you through what happen, happens. Walk me Bhutan. through the short film. Um, has your brother ever been to Bhutan? The one that travels all over I'm the world sure. and is is uh, a Buddhist? Is he a Buddhist? 
Um, I think he's invented. He's kind of a cult leader at this point. That's, That's awesome. a larger conversation, uh, and he's buying up land to build a compound in Central America. So, you know, if he starts ordering uh, Kool Aid in bulk, maybe an intervention of our family would be helpful. Well, at um, least he's an American, you know, a yeah, central he's, one. He's following a template. <laughs> Some would say the people's template. You should show him Walker and be like, "You, you want to do this? This is what you're doing. Got, got it. Cool." He's definitely doing something. I'm sure he was. Um, funnily enough, when I had to travel to the Philippines for for work, he's like, "Oh, I'm going to be in Thailand, so I'll come meet you in the Philippines." You know, normal things that happen. Interesting. So he he probably made his way to Bhutan somewhere in there. Yeah. Um, so I don't think this happened to him. If that's what you're, getting. I I would assume not. Um, because you have seen him in the recent past. Um, yeah, a couple weeks ago. So in Bhutan, 1995, uh, a group of hikers, four of them um, from America, are <clears throat> uh, climbing. They're, uh, I, I don't think they're on a spiritual quest uh, any more than anything. No. They're just there to see the sights. They're climbing. It's the sort of shit, it's the sort of shit that like me and my friends would do if we had a lot more disposable income and vacation time. Um, yeah. So maybe it's maybe it's good that in America they don't give you enough vacation time. Um, so they're hiking. We're, we're introduced to it's two couples, uh, two two guys and and their wife dash girlfriends. Um, we're introduced two heteronormative, to, boring white couples. <laughs> well, they don't need to sustain the movie. Um, <laughs> one of the guys is the lead of uh, another lo- great Lovecraft movie, The Void. Oh yeah. Um, and he, and, and he's pretty good in the limited role he is, but he's Aaron is Aaron Poole, right? Yeah, I think so. So they're standing <clears throat> on top of a mountain, enjoying the view when one of them, Aaron Poole, let's call him that. I, I it's better than my, what I put in my notes, which is, uh, not Rob McElhenney. Um, and, uh, oh, but factually accurate. Yeah. This is not Rob McElhenney. I mean, I could call myself not Rob McElhenney. There's a yeah, lot of people that aren't Rob McElhenney. You know, you know how like Alice in Wonderland like has not birthdays? Uh, 300, 364 of them, in fact. You have a lot of people that you're not. Yeah. An almost infinite amount. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, less than infinite. Yeah. Um, but you're not Gerald Ford, for example. I can start calling you. <laughs> this podcast is hosted by Aaron Armstrong and not Gerald Ford. Listen, I would say 365 if you include leap days. Um, so, Aaron. Um, so, uh, not Rob McElhenney, Aaron Poole. Uh, he is uh, standing on top of the mountain and he falls into a shaft. And he just kind of disappears. <clears throat> All the friends chase after him and they see that he's falling. Would you say he got shafted? He got, he got shafted. I mean, he did get shafted. Literally. Um just like you're literally, it's literally not Mac- Rob McElhaney. The motherfucker probably took an 18-hour flight to get there. Uh, we, and I know we got a lot for to talk six about. hours. I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop. Yeah, he, th- this man traveled across <laughs> across the Pacific Ocean just to become a lifeless Empty husk man. for a demon. Um, yeah. So, um, uh, do you want to grow into a satellite dish when you grow up? <laughs> So he fa- he falls in, and we see uh, one of the most iconic images of the movie, probably, um, which is that he is sitting um, in a meditative position in front of a strange, uh, fucked up skeleton that does is not dissimilar from, say, the pilots in Alien. Um, yeah, it's it's, very big, it's bigger than a human. And its ribs look like praying hands. Like at first, you think it has these giant hands, but they're not the hands. It is the 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 ribs that come into like a folding 
um, a folding hand like meditation pose, mm-hmm. and then the hands are like raised above, like he's being crucified. It is a fantastic image. It's it's both a creature of um, terror, but a creature of patheticness. It's yeah. it's it's something that died humbled in this cage. Um, and uh, yeah, it's 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 like it's like a really great image. Um, but he's sitting there in a meditative state and he is going to be comatose essentially for the rest of the movie to some degree. He has been taken over by this presence. The presence has played hot potato um, or yeah. tag your it, I guess, is more appropriate uh, with with his uh, his consciousness. Uh, his his uh, Aaron Poole's friend comes down and is trying to rouse him awake He's wondering if he's faking it, and he tells him, don't touch me. Don't touch me or you'll die. And those are kind of the last words he says in English before he becomes a yeah. a lifeless husk, a antenna for a, a creature. But I love the implication that he knows that, like, we're not inside his head, but whatever's going on is in his head is, like, he musters his last breath to try to warn his friend to not touch him. That was his last expression as a human was like, like basically leave me alone. Let me die here. Like, yeah. So, um, his, his, his friend, he doesn't listen to him. I I wouldn't listen to him. Uh, no, typical white people. I would, I would, we, they drag him out. A snowstorm comes in and takes over the mountain. They find a, a rest lodge, um, and, uh, beat down the door, get in. There's no one else there. They um, spend a few days, three days specifically there, um, sort of resting. Yeah, it flashes day one, him. day two, day three. It's yeah, so he good. never really gets up. The it, music it's great. The, the music and those title cards in this is so, so good, so ominous. Yeah. The whole movie is this, like, it's not sterile, but this, like, sort of like, oh, I don't know what's happening, but it's bad. <laughs> it's very dour. Yes. But, like, dour in it, everything's about to fall apart way. Um, they, so they, they try to rouse in the county. They think of plans. How are they going to get through Snowstorm? The the most kind of iconic creepy moment in the middle is at one point uh, one of their uh, one of their partners uh, – I think is it the partner of – yeah, it's the partner of the guy who's in who, – who's in a coma. He, yeah, she Ruth, hears Ruthie. a knock at the do- – yeah, she, she, she hears a knock at the door. She opens the door and there's like a – figure what seems like a hooded figure and uh, obscured by a snowstorm in the distance she's like thank god someone's here come help come help and eventually the the it looks like it's obscured by the snowstorm but what you find out is that this is almost like a representation of the the empty man it's not obscured by anything it is essentially an almost like in a very Lovecraftian way, it's almost un- – you can't really focus on it. Like the best way I would describe it, it's like, you know, when you see like a Japanese horror film or something, it looks like a, like a hair monster. But as it gets closer, you see a face and you see the clothes that it's wearing and it just, you know, like a Junji Ido thing has so much hair, like a Tomi or something like that. But there is a figure underneath all that stuff. And in here, as it gets closer and closer, it never unobscures itself. It just seems like out of focus, long hair that like makes the representation of like a cloak and hands and other things. And it's very uh, uncanny and creepy and it starts running, like flying towards her at top speed and she closes the door. And then all of a sudden her, her she opens the door again and there's the other couple who's like, why would you slam the door in our face? We were talking to you and obviously we know it's also one continuous shot that they weren't there a second ago. So 
Great yeah. creepy moment. Yeah, and that's, I mean, and that's sort of a microcosm of we could talk about what the Empty Man myth is and sort of how this movie was marketed, yeah. poorly marketed, I will say. They tried to make this movie into a bye-bye man, a um, – a, uh, uh, what's the um, – uh, Truth uh, or dare, escape room, like – a, co- a concept Blood, team. bloody bloody mary yeah 100% they try to do like you say they really try to zero in on the thing of like you blow into the bottle you stand on the bridge 3 days later it comes for you like a ring thing yeah. like and that is a part of it but it is a very small part of where this go- the, this ends up going yeah yeah so um what it is yeah you 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 stand on a bridge you blow into the into a, a tube of some t- sort Aaron is using a bone um and then you think of the empty man um you conjure him in your head you're essentially performing an act of manifestation and then the empty man will essentially haunt you until he kills you three days later that is something that the movie hints at being a big scary concept and then yeah. um you find out pretty quickly in the first act uh after this prologue that it's, it's not super important but they're establishing kind of what the rough rules are here um so we can kind of well, jump. essentially i would actually say the next hour because the next hour doesn't happen yeah yeah and i i think so can, i think we can yeah, probably we'll kind of rush to the end here um so he, um, Aaron is mostly comatose. They're spending three days trying to take care of him. Ruthie oh, is yeah. losing it. And Ruthie is imagining Aaron, Aaron is speaking to him in some sort of. It's like. You can't make out a single word. Yeah. It's like. Can't make a, it sounds like speech that you can't understand. There's a great creepy thing in the, which we'll t- I'll, might talk about in the Annihilation books that I'm reading. The Southern Reach thing. Mm-hmm. Where they they get a, a video, uh. They watch two people on video who are speaking in words that obviously no one – like, it's not really words. It just has the cadence of words and what a creepy concept that is. And that's essentially what's happening here. Too. Yeah, yeah. It's um, – it's it is it is very – it is very terrifying. But yeah, the, he's speaking to her and it's having a psychological impact on her. She is getting more and more stressed out. And then one day they're like, fuck it. We got to get out of here. It's day three. We got to get out of here. They start trying to cross the bridge to get back. And um, Ruthie and uh, Aaron <laughs> signal to each other a little bit. And, and, well, and, and Aaron is just way. now making this this voice noise. Ruthie pulls out a knife, stabs her two friends, pushes them off the cliff, and then jumps off herself. It's actually just, really brutal. Like I really like how I really like how how mean it is. And then and then we leave Aaron just sitting there on the edge of the cliff, blowing into the bone flute. And then we yep. cut away, and then new movie starts. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the name that we're introduced to James Lasombra. We've already given away that he's a tulpa. Lasombra means the shadow. It's pretty indicative of the fact that he is sort of an empty man. He's sort of a fake man. He's an artificial construct. Um. So James is a haunted uh, ex cop who now runs a security store. Um, he's part time private detective he's an alcoholic he uh, full-time full-time alcoholic yeah uh he puts in the that's actually that's by by definition that's something you only commit to yeah yeah i mean you can't half-ass it um no but he not you're literally not it yeah (laughs) so he uh is um and he's, yeah, ex-cop, whatever. He lost his wife. I'm, I'm kind of jumping around a little bit, but the reveal that you find out later is that he, he lost his wife and his child. Um, 
or at least his implanted memories, he lost his wife as his child as he stayed back behind to comfort um, their friend's to widow. Get, yeah, get some um, strange. And he, and in his memory, he was having raunchy post uh, funeral sex with uh, his friend, family friend, uh, while his wife and child got into a snowy car accident and crashed off and a died. bridge and died. Yeah, and that that'll be revealed, and you flash back to his memories, his dreams about it, you know, and that is also obviously, you know, I, this is this specific situation has never happened to me, but as an empathetic human being, I can understand how that also ultimately strained the relationship with the wife of his dead friend, yeah, because they barely talk anymore, but eventually she starts to worry about her daughter because, uh, and again, this is also something I totally understand. His parent daughter went missing. Who would want that? It's you relatable. don't have to have a daughter. All these things are relatable. If you had sex with someone and cheat on your wife in an act of mourning, and maybe as some would say celebration of life, and then your wife and your kid died, I could see how you could have like double guilt. I should have been in the car. Maybe if I was driving, I could have done something. Also, I was getting my rocks off while rocks were probably hitting their head. Like a lot of like rocks off, rocks on. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's yeah, just like Karate Kid. Rocks I just mean you know rocks it's off. a yin and yang you know if you're gonna Very get your boost, rocks off much like a topa rocks on yep they have to all exist within the <laughs> confines of a consistent universe the universe has uh, a balance and, then, yeah. and a karma to it yeah and then um you know he his daughter th- this lady's daughter goes missing and he's like you know I understand that as someone who lost a son I didn't try to find my son because I knew where he was but I still lost my son and he's like, fine, I'll look for him. It's a lot of like, what's his name? James Dale. James Badge Dale is the actor who I'm a yeah. I, I'm a I'm a I'm a Dale head. I like this guy a lot. I like him too. I mean, I remember him from every. He is an he is, and I mean this like nicely. He is an also ran in big stuff that you've seen. He's like, you know, he's in The Departed, but he's like probably the fifteenth lead of The Departed. He's in, you know, he's in Twenty Four for like two seasons. He's like, great in the that, Pacific. That's where I was introduced yeah. him to. I have not seen the Pacific, he's, so I I really like him too. But he is he is kind of like he was good in uh, Twenty Four because he he's a good whisper talker next to Kiefer Sutherland. You know, they both kind of have that. Okay, let me go check it out. <laughs> he's very sad. He's very affected. Um, and he he goes and he's like, I'm going to investigate this mystery. And he very soon discovers that uh, her daughter may have been into some odd stuff. Like he goes through her stuff and he finds these things for this Pontifex Institute. And when he starts interviewing his friends, her her friends, they're like, yeah, she was with us on the bridge this night and eventually reveals that they did the legend. Oh, uh, when he and then when he looks in her room. After she's missing, um, it also says on the wall, the empty man made me do it. Drawn in what looks like blood on the on the bathroom mirror. So he starts asking her friends about the empty man. And they said, yeah, there's this thing that we believe that, you know, it's just a dumb rumor, but we did it. We were on this bridge one night. We blew in a bottle. The idea is that, you know, if you do that in three days, the empty man comes for you and kills you. And so he's interviewing all his, their friends, and eventually he goes up. Like you see the the flash of them on the bridge blowing the bottle, and then he goes as part of the investigation and does that too. A lot of great like creepy moments in all of this stuff because like there's a great scene where like he's talking to his um he's hearing the story from his uh the missing girl's best friend, 
And we all of a sudden look over at all their friends. They're like, well, we all did it. And you look at all of their friends and they're like in a line sitting in that same like meditation pose and all turn their heads simultaneously to look at uh, to look at James Badge Dale. And it's like super – it's great. Like yeah. a lot of little creepy moments. Again, Peter, I also thought not knowing a lot of this movie – that this is what type of movie that we were getting. We were getting the Bloody Mary movie. We were getting the Candyman movie. You say the name three times. You're getting the ring type movie. He he then goes and tries it himself. He blows the bottle on the bridge. And now you see day one show up the next, the next morning in the title card. He gets a visit that night from that same hair ghost. And you're like, oh, fuck. This is the movie it's in. It's just going to be stylized and cool like the first 20 minutes were. Right. And it's going to take a little bit longer because we're actually like going through the day by day as a, as opposed to um, seeing quick being, flashes. It, the original, the, 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 the prologue kind of acts as a campfire story, right? You're not like telling, you're not saying what that guy had for breakfast. The main, the main, the main movie is treating it sort of like the ring, you know, with the week where like, it's really reveling in the fact that we have not that much time, but it's set units of time, right? Yeah, you're you think it's an investigative movie. Like he's he's interviewing people. He's also having nightmares at night. He's talking to his you know the his friends, um, his widow, his uh, his friend's widow, and is like, have we punished each other enough? Like we have no one else in our lives. Our spouse has died. Like maybe there's a connection here. Maybe we should be be together. He's still committed in finding his daughter, but like eventually. He discovers underneath this bridge that all of her friends have committed suicide. After, and then one of her friends, her best friend, stabbed herself to death in a shower, right? Um, in a great creepy moment, she's oh. taking a shower. She takes the scissors and, like, we see the empty man, the hair-obscured figure, come and, like, force the scissors into her neck. But to anyone else, and then it flashes to, to to that figure being disappeared, and she's just stabbing it. So again, we're we're hitting on this common trope. This thing is literally controlling your body, but it's making you look like you kill yourself. That's what happens three days after this, and then he discovers under the bridge that all the other friends that were there that night are also dead. So now they're more worried about okay. So everyone that was there with your daughter last night committed suicide, and we still don't know where she is. But there becomes more of a panic of. Maybe she also committed suicide. Yeah. And, and you, what you find out kind of as the movie goes on is that Amanda, as a member of this cult, has sort of been able to disappear herself when she wants to because the cult is a cult of nothingness and creation. When you, And also none of this happened. None of this happened. But all of it happened. But none of this happened. Like this sort none of, of this, this, sort none of this deep, actually happened. But, deep, but this sort of – but some of it – but we None have no James's, idea if Nat- Natalie's has happened, but I think every scene with Amanda does literally happen. I think when the movie starts is when his his programming is already pre-programmed, and when the movie starts, give or take ten minutes, um, is those are those are things that are happening live to the Tulpa. He was brought online with 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 these memories already installed in him, and what we're seeing is like his first few days of life, real life. No, but none of this part happens to him. The the suicides and the investigation, all of this is real. Uh, but it doesn't happen to him, right? 
What you, yeah, the, all of that happened to him. The the background stuff didn't happen. The the um the like wife and child were fake. He well, didn't I, so I, under, I understand all that, but like he, he comes started to existing life. when the movie starts, basically. In the timeline. So so I actually thought that he came to be when they um, are in the room at the inst- – when he walks in and he makes that bump and they're like, is someone here with us right now when they're trying to summon in that summon circle in the Pontifex Institute? I – and maybe I'm wrong. I thought that's when he came into being. No, I think that's just him ex- him being summoned into in, – in, in, he's literally existing in one state and he's, he's being summoned – his spirit presence is being summoned in another state. I think the point of the – for me, one of the thematic strengths of this movie that I really like is that when a movie starts, like, you're like, this person didn't exist before the credits rolled or yeah. before I hit play on the DVD. And I, by hitting play on this movie, have created a, a person so, in a weird way. So here's the, where, the, though, the director I think- has created a person. And now we're seeing, mm-hmm. like, him being run through a series of simulations. And I think Amanda checking, sitting on that bench with him and talking to him. And she has a great monologue. And we'll get to that in a second. Yeah. She has a great monologue. I think she's literally like doing diagnostics on a newborn. Like she's so she's like checking in on the newborn. So here, but here's the problem, at least and why I didn't think the same. So at the, at a minimum, it doesn't start. So all the stuff about him investigating with his sister's fr- – with his uh, with his fr- um, with his daughter's – or sorry, his his friend's daughter's – wait, yes, friend's daughter's friends. All of that didn't happen because at a minimum, he came into being on day one, which would have been after the empty man part. So like – like he may have found their dead bodies, but like him talking to the friend in the car and blowing on the blowing on the bridge and all that stuff we see in that first thirty minutes at a, in the movie at a minimum didn't happen. Those were all implanted memories. But here's the other thing, though, is that they imply he's such a newborn that like remember when he calls Amanda's mom. She's never met him. She doesn't know who he is. So that means every scene with Amanda's mom, which goes. Up until the point he goes and investigates the Institute, all of that was implanted memories too. And she says, you've never met my mom. Yeah. That hasn't – So I like – so no- I interpreted that differently. But I love that last week we ha- – I thought this week would be the movie that we were like – we saw the same exact thing. <laughs> so – because remember I, when they I, tell him – when they tell him that he was summoned into existence, he flashes back to that weird moment where he he accidentally made that big bump. Yeah, when they're all summoning him at the uh, when they're all in that summoning circle trying to bring something to existence at the Pontifex Institute, yeah, yeah, yeah. and they he makes a big bump and everyone goes, "Wait, is someone here with us?" And obviously, they could have seen that he was in the in the room, but I thought, why you flash back to that moment when he when he gets explained what he is and that he was summoned into being is because that was the moment he entered existence and that's they not, went, is someone here with us? That's not how I read that scene. Cause he, I mean, well, for one, he's in, he's in two places in that room. Right. Um, well, yeah. Well, but it's, it's, his consciousness kind of entering into the, into the top of the thing. But why would his consciousness, if that was the moment of birth, why would his consciousness exist at two points, two places in the same room, like 20 feet apart or 40 feet apart? 
I think it's like kind of like seeing outside of yourself, but I, I do think that's the moment he exists, and that makes sense later on when Amanda's like, "You've never met my mom." Those are all implanted. I I think I interpreted that later as a as as something different, but um, I think so. That I, I, think I guess my interpretation, I, I, may, I may be wrong. No, no, no. Was that that, that, that is the moment that he comes into being. I think everything it's a else before because there's yeah. literally a moment of people doing a a, man, a summoning. Uh, ritual <clears throat> and then you find out later <clears throat> that in some way his spiritual consciousness was called to that moment like I think you're absolutely right like that's a valid reading not saying you're wrong um, and I also think that you can interpret the end one of the ending scenes where Amanda's mom is like <clears throat> I don't know who you are but she, her mom also says I don't know who Amanda is no she doesn't say I don't know who yeah, Amanda she is know, she, she says, says I don't have a daughter no, she says that's my mom she, she says, goes, no, she, she says, says what are you talking? No, she says, what are you talking about? I'm trying to find your missing daughter. And, and she he says, doesn't what know what she's talking about? about. And she doesn't know who he is and she doesn't know who the daughter is. No, I think she doesn't know anything about a missing daughter because that's all implanted memories. Because also, like, if you're if, – if he existed for those – like, those day one, day two and that investigations when he came into existence, it also means that he's interacting with those police people in real life. And those police people wouldn't have known him because through that investigation, he keeps oh. going to talk to the police chief. Yeah, no, no. I read that scene differently too. No, OK. So the, the mom – Amanda's mom literally is like, I don't have a daughter and uh, – She does not say she are. doesn't have a daughter. She does say that. She, Amanda even says that that's my mom. Like she, she, says, on the she phone. says specifically, she says no. She says, um, "I implanted that you had an affair with my mom." Like she says that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But she, Amanda, Amanda is playing a game where she like disappears herself from reality. Hold on, I'm. I'm I think her disappearance was a – I think all that mystery and her disappearance was just fake implanted memories. I don't because think – Because she was saying I was trying to connect you to a real thing so that you got to the right frequency through this. So you are self-loathing and you're trying to do a favor for a friend. And she says I took some of that from my real life and my real mom. And she says – she makes some comment about making him sleep. How did you like sleeping with my mom? Or something like that. Like, I put, she goes, I put that in there. She, okay. He definitely, anything that takes place chronologically before the first scene in the movie when he's running, like the the children's death, the, yeah, okay. the child's we're, death. We're 100% um, agreeing. And, I the just fu- think- and the fucking, which happened at the same time. All of that was 100% implanted. 100%. Yeah, they say um, he's only existed for a day. So obviously that's that's true. But so are you saying that he actually like why was he talking to police chiefs in the days that he existed? Why did they know who he was? He was he was inserted as a as a police figure and reality bent around him to make him real. Uh, I I mean I I I know you're referencing the book part, but I that doesn't make any sense because they later on, like the mom doesn't know who he is. Like they've clearly never met in real life. Those are but the mom knows implanted who he is memories. in that moment when that ha- like I, I don't I don't read. But that. Th- those I are implanted. Know, he doesn't know when he calls. But when he calls, he she doesn't know who he is, implying that they've never actually met in the real life. No, so no that no, means every has, part where they he just if he has specific memories of them meeting. Sure, whatever. But I think that the. I think that everything that happens can is 
When we get to the end of the movie, we find out that the group, the Pontifex group, has such a control over reality that they can make people disappear and appear out of reality. That they have such a control over reality that they can affect what actual reality is. Because they have control over the psychic no-sphere, this, like, co- this psychic yeah. connection between all people. And... At the end of the movie, that's a show of strength. It's Amanda basically saying, like, I've moved on from all of this. I'm no longer – I, I was never missing. I'm not a missing girl. Um, yeah. I, 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 but I, I, felt, I think that I really means the missing person case was inserted into him to draw connections and to get him to the right frequency. I, Perhaps. I don't, I, I, don't read, I don't read it that – I don't read it that the entire movie was fake. I do read that, like, his entire motivation and that, like, the, his – Maybe, maybe his attachment to Amanda was part of the um, implantation. Maybe, like that makes sense. Um, but everything was like his entire life, everything up to the moment of. At some point in the movie, he was created. Now you're saying it happened in the beginning of the movie, but that also implies that if he was created at the beginning of the movie, when we see him, like he didn't exist before that, which is fine. It also implies that he had a bunch of interactions with real life people. Mm-hmm. During those times, that if he was created out of thin air, don't make any sense that he had any interactions and and that they knew his backstory too. No, 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 no. But that's the thing we were just talking about is that when a tulpa is created and brought into the universe, universe bends around it. And that people are like – So then why did the mom later not know though? Because they – So like – Because they – Because the the mom uh, – has been manipulated to basically forget that she has a daughter as well. The mom has been clearly manipulated to be a motivating factor for him in the plot. But then later, but I guess that the I my only problem with that explanation is that like so she knew everything about this stuff through a certain point, and then when he calls, she sometime between then and that was manipulated. Like it doesn't. I, I think she does know who her daughter is. She just doesn't know who this guy is because everything we saw about their interactions was all part of their manipulated memory into him. Like they never – like in a yeah. in the real world of the empty man, she, he never met the yeah. mom. He never met the – and that's why like from the point where he if, – if you assume – like again, if you go with my interpretation, which I'm not saying is 100% right or anything like that. But if you go through my interpretation, it also works from a sixth sense perspective because after that moment, he never talks to the police people or the mom in real life again. He yeah, leaves a message but for he's her. more contained at that point. He's operating in sort of a strange psychic space. Like when he faces off against the empty man monster, he's in like a psychic brain tunnel that may be below the Pontifex Institute and maybe below the hospital and maybe a completely – different you know psychic space like at that point in the movie i feel like that that that's kind of we've kind of crossed a but don't but don't you think that's interesting that like all these like talking to people in the school talking to the cops who all also know his backstory talking to the mom who obviously has the memories of the relationship and then after that point where he is like summoned into whatever that basement is thing that we see in the movie he never meets anyone that he had met previously again in real life like he never yeah, has but that's also meeting with the movie mom. is narrowing to a point right like that's that's just like that's just but the there's another hour the I, sure but like it also backs up like my sixth sense type interpretation that all that was implanted memory and now he actually is in the world and now we never see him interact with those people yeah that's that's not that's that's not how i read it um and, and, like, the thematic connections that I drew from the movie, I think, are more interesting to me with the 
we us being introduced to James as this like tropey kind of guy. Yeah. That's like basically his first day on Earth. That's a that's a writer coming up with a writer ass way to get us into the plot. And that's true because that's what the Pontifex Institute did. They came up with a writer ass way to yeah. to get us into the plot. And it's and uh, I I disagree that the I disagree that he that like that much of this movie was an implanted memory. Because but so one other and thing all I'll of his say. flashbacks all of his flashbacks are related to the 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 traumatic events because the traumatic events are like the node of what his motivating factor is. So. So think about it though. Like just just hear me out a little bit. So he is he's talking to Steven Root. He's t- they're talking about the empty man. This is like before the part where he you think he's investigating the basement of this like weird um like a con- conference hall that they're holding this pontifex meeting, right? We also never see Steven Root again. Um we so they're I having this the, meeting. I don't think the. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. That he hold. never sees any of those people again isn't very convincing to me. So that's just how movies um, work. I mean, he's been seeing these people throughout the movie. Not Stephen Root, but the the he keeps going back to the police station, keeps talking to these people about the case. I understand at the end of Chinatown, they bring back every character from the movie. So, so okay, the blazing on. saddles, they bring them back. So he he gets explained what an empty man is to Stephen Root. He all of a sudden is in this weird basement that's like cavernous. Um, seems mm-hmm. like it's bigger than another conference hall. They're doing the summoning. He has this weird thing where he accidentally bumps and could easily be seen, but instead everyone goes, Is someone in the room with us by now? Then he comes out of this cabin. How did he get to the cabin? Right? He comes out of this cabin area, and when he emerges from the cabin after looking around at some papers and some other stuff there, everyone is having the occult like summoning thing that's happening. And running around the fire, and when they see him emerge, almost like they've been waiting for this to happen, everyone turns around and looks at him and starts, like, being obsessed with him being there. So, like, if that is the point of his existence, everything else, like, how he got to the cabin, how he got to all this weird space that at first you're like, oh, it must be under the church, and then we must be – like, all of it really tracks well, I think, with everything else that we've we've seen. So, I could be wrong, and I'm – but my interpretation was literally in the middle of the movie, we actually see him come to existence, which is why they flash back to that point when he's explained that we brought you into existence. They flash back to that moment in the room when some, when everyone said, like, I think they're clearly trying to draw a connection between that being his creation point. And that's why then after that point, he never runs into any of the real life characters we see again. Like, I think it's the movie doing a twist to make, to make you surprise. It's kind of doing a sixth sense or a usual suspects thing because now he still is telling his backstory to everyone. Like that random guy from the cult that he fights with. He's like, look, I'm from San Francisco, man. But that's like all part of his, he never goes back and meets any of those people. The San Francisco thing, I, I, that's, that's just part of his programming and him coming back to that. Well, yeah, it it is part of his programming, but like, but that happens before the movie. His programming is that he grew up in San Francisco and the movie doesn't take place in the Bay Area at all. But we're seeing the programming happen. I mean, we, we see it earlier too, but if I, if, if my theory is right and that's where he comes into existence, he starts saying it to everyone he meets, like that kid who he fights with in the car, who's laughing at him. And like, I, I don't know. I, I don't, th- I think the first half of what we see to him up until that point where he is in the room that he never actually exists, those are all part of the implanted memories. That's my, 
Uh, when he meets Stephen Root, he says, um, uh, <laughs> Stephen Root says, uh, well, welcome back. Or like, you've been here before, right? And yeah. at that point, I'm like, oh, this is him as a basically a newborn baby that was at the Institute before as a bald baby because mm-hmm. there's, there's he finds that file that has him as a like a bald um, one of the psychic patients that they find at the retreat. I, I just don't think I, I don't think that the movie makes emotional sense to me and it doesn't make logical sense to me if he is not being introduced to the world we're witnessing his first days and they are taking him through a series of diagnostic tests and they're trying to make him self-aware enough and slowly bringing him like fully online like I, I, I think the movie just works emotionally better for me if, like, as he's going through, he's running into more Pontifex people who are giving him more and more of the story, and they're slowly trying to bring him into a, a, a vision of reality so that he can serve that purpose. And all the programming is just so he doesn't go, actually, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm an alcoholic. I'm going to go home and drink. Like, he has all the other programming built in because he needs to be pushed through the plot of the of the, the movie. He needs to be pushed through his self-realization plot. Yeah, I mean, I, I just think the first the first half of the movie makes, if he came into existence at the beginning of the movie, it just doesn't make any logical sense for where we're, like, the emotional resonance, because I always Which interpreted that funny way. funny that I think yours doesn't make any logical sense. Like, it's a, it is a... It is a but why, why would he live out part of the... Why would he live out part of the... One 15-minute version. Two, like, obviously, like, this is not uh, David Pryor's final version. And two, we are intended to some degree get wrapped up in all of his bullshit. Like, maybe. Agreed. And Uh, maybe. I agree. I agree with that 100%. And maybe, like, you think that, like, there's 60% bullshit and I think there's 30% bullshit or something like that. Um, Like, we're intended to get wrapped up and and get emotionally involved in this damaged guy who wants to find a missing girl that is sort of a surrogate daughter for him. Um, And like, I like that you and I we're we're obviously witnessing like a chopped up kind of messy, messy final cut for a movie that both of us love. Um, Yeah. But we're kind of disagreeing on how much is bullshit, which is, which is also what his journey is. Like he's, he's coming to this, like he's coming online and he's, Becoming to doubt reality. And I think if Stephen Root were here, he'd be like, guys, none of it matters because he got to the point he needed to get to. Yeah, I think that, yeah. So he, after the the daughter, um, after the, the everyone else kill, uh, kills himself, he finally goes and investigates the Pontifex Institute. Amazing Stephen Root scene who first gives a speech about the nature of the empty man, like a Scientology leader, and then... Yeah, he goes and talks to him afterwards and is like, I just – it's so weird you guys are saying empty man because that's what people keep writing. This also feels a lot like something that like was in the first couple issues of the comic. Like I'm sure when people saw this movie who loved the comic were like, what the fuck is this? (laughs) But there are are those little moments of like, oh, yeah, that was kind of happening in the comic too. They they met a church that referenced the empty man and they're like, so weird you guys are saying the empty man when people keep writing that when they kill themselves – and they're like, well, it could be completely unrelated. Um, I, uh, but gr- I love great the scene. Stephen Root scene. I, yeah, I love it too. I Th- think this was the this was the scene. Speaking of which, everything before this is the tropey kids kill themselves, 
uh, through the empty man, like drama stuff. Mm-hmm. In my interpretation, that was all part of the stew they made mm-hmm. to get this guy on the right track. But either way, they either injected that those thoughts into his head as part of their person stew, or this was the path they set him on to get him to the point where he was the right uh, right amount of cooking or boiling to to be the right temperature for the stew. Um, and but this was the scene in the movie where I finally went, oh. I before it was kind of a cool creepy horror movie that I wasn't expecting more than that from and this was the scene where I'm like oh shit is there something much bigger going on here that I'm gonna love and the movie totally switches gears from this point and really dives into what's an empty man because then after this we leave all that other stuff behind and he starts going and investigating the Pontifex Institute he is investigating what again we think is the basement this is the point where I think he is brought into existence. But he in, in, intrudes on some sort of summoning ritual. And then he's in a cabin investigating these papers and watching these old videos and finding these people in the cult that he's walking by that are just staring at this TV screen that's making those weird wordless noises again. Almost like he was summoned and is walking through the institute because he's been summoned into it. But anyways, um, he they start finding the paperwork and he sees folders and file for folders, including his name, with all these little pieces of his backstory. Like, you know, person died. This happened. They have these fake tickets that, uh, you know, he had on him just a week ago. That was like, how did they get this like free lunch that I was going to take my kid to or whatever? I forget exactly what it is. It's like a coupon to a restaurant that he went to with his kid, right? Uh, yeah. It was a it's a it's a birthday coupon free free lunch if it's and your it, birthday. And again, how how did they get it? Great question. Unless it was just something they did to implant to his to his memory because we saw him have it on him. Uh, two days ago, if he was there's also the there's but, also the thing where all the kids are like looking to the side. Like there's a there's an implication that there are that this cult has grown way larger and it's completely. I mean, yes. What, how else did they find Amanda? Right? Is she the only high schooler who got invaded? Um, I think there's an implication that the cult yeah. is following him, tracking his activities. He goes to this Mexican yeah. restaurant every Wednesday. Like, you yeah. know. Yeah, but it's all—it's all—that's all fake because obviously he's not going to the Mexican restaurant every Wednesday, right? Well, he, this is even in your—he was programmed to—he's programmed to believe that this is where he goes on his birthday. Yeah, but there—he's just finding all the building this blocks is probably the of first every time part of his ever life. Eaten. This is the first time he's had a chimichanga, Aaron. Show some respect. Well, he doesn't know it's the first time. He thinks it's a regular thing that happens. He, so, anyways, thinks it's, he thinks it's a regular thing. It's I would say I don't think he ever had that chimichanga, it's just, so it's much sadder to me because that was an implanted memory. It's much sadder to me if we go with your interpretation because that means he. Never I just had said a it's more. It's sadder to me that he never had a chimichanga. I he never agreed. had a chimichanga. Was, chimichangas are great. I, I'm saying it's it's my interpretation is sadder because <laughs> he never had it. My man didn't get one changa. He got no changas. Zero changas. Because he's the empty man. If he ate a chimichanga, he'd be the full man. How many times do I have to say it to you? They're, they're big, you get full. Yeah, would they're grande. Would you be the empty man if you had a chimichanga, Peter? I had a burrito for lunch, so. man. I'm still full. Well, you, I know. You texted me and from that, the bathroom earlier. That was not even a chong. No, it's, a, it's just a breeze. <laughs> now, her cool guy nickname. <laughs> so, anyways, so he uh, the scene where he exits that cabin and sees the cult running around the giant fire. The fire goes up into heaven, like a tentacle, like, a tentacle kind of summoning him. And then all of a sudden, he looks up down from the fire, and there 
there he is and everyone is staring stop running around the fire and is staring right at him and when he takes a step forward they all take one single step forward he's like fuck this and starts running it's such a great creepy scene it kind of reminds me of uh the ending of the last exorcism which is a great movie mm-hmm. by the way but really like good found that whole movie. Yeah, um, the whole cult thing at the end when they go to the bonfire and it's like much weirder and bigger than you were expecting because you're expecting some shit from Kill List, like just a cult hanging out at a fire and it's like, what the fuck is this? Uh, it's so good. And this is this is like one of my favorite scenes. In the movie. And that's something that step forward, another step forward, and then everybody starts running. That's something that people do with the Empty Man. They did in the prologue. It's like a, yeah. it's like a weird uh, dance. Uh, I love that James Badgedale was actually really funny. I love when he went, yeah, no. And then oh, he, yeah, he doesn't say fuck this. He says, yeah, no. Uh, yeah, it's great. It's all. Yeah. Oh. He's very funny in this movie that is mostly bleak. Yeah. So then he he drives back. Uh, yeah, man. I grew up in I grew up in San Francisco. I grew up in Haight Ashbury. <laughs> I, I get all the new age shit. Yeah. Uh, he says that so much, and you think it's just bad writing, and then like I we're like oh, we get it. He's from San Francisco. It's like man. oh, it, it's so it's so good how much of those first things you realize is just programming. This is one of those movies where if you stopped an hour in, you'd be like, this is kind of a bad movie. If you watch it all the way to the end, you were like, oh, that's why they did that. Yeah. So he then goes back. He leaves a message, importantly, does not meet her in person to the mom. He's like, I found this cult. They have folders. They have all this stuff. Like something weird is going on. He has another dream of the empty man and all this other stuff. And um, he kind of goes back out, but he's looking more haggard and he like finds one of the kids from the cult. He starts kind of like accosting him and is like, you tell me. And this guy is completely unflappable. He's like, you don't even know what you are. The world is going to devolve into chaos. It's going to be a bloody like mess. And even as he's punching him, he just starts laughing hysterically at how silly this is. Like it matters that he's beating him up. And again, you're starting to get that you know ending scenes of in the mouth of madness like something very like dark and sinister is going on and our hero and us as an audience member is kind of incapable of of figuring that out so the one lead that he did have is this name that he's able to track down to like this hospital right that this may have taken his daughter and the scene where he's interviewing the hospital person is also so creepy because he's like, who's that in there? And she's like, I can't reveal medical information. I, I love that. And then she immediately reveals all of his medical information. But she, I mean, at first you think like something is threatening her that we don't understand because she's looking more and more scared and terrified and slowly revealing everything that she said she wasn't going to. You don't really know what that's about. You're going to find out later that essentially she, this hospital is run by the Pontifex Institute and she was kind of getting fearful in the same way you would be fearful in the eyes of God because they know that this is the vessel for the empty. She starts – she realizes quickly that this is the vessel for the empty man that's asking questions. And so she does get like very passive and terrified in the same way you would be if like a god – a, a soon-to-be god starts talking to you yeah. essentially. And I, I, feel, um, I feel like maybe there's like a – there's like a one implant theory, which is my theory – and there's like a two implant theory, which is like there was there was like a bunch of background shit that's like that's implant one. And then there's like 
all the stuff that we're watching live, which is like Implant uh-huh. 2. Like, everything we're watching, like, live happening, it's not a uh, flashback, all of that. And this happening now, and they're, like, treating him like a god, you're like, you're like, oh, this is, this is, like, a level of respect that he hasn't been getting thus far. And it's like, is this a big act? Like, I would, I would interfere. Like, is this them trying to, like, test him? judge the experiment are these like scientists poking and prodding Mm -hmm. at him or was all that shit before kind of just like just kind of implanted memories and like all that friction that he faced was just a reason for him to push forward through you know the yeah i mean obviously so i think all that was implanted Mm -hmm. memories and he started there so like now when you're seeing him interact with people, whether it's the bonfire people or the the kid that doesn't mind getting the shit kicked out of him by him because he's like, do you know who you are? Like, this is great that you're here. I don't care that you're leaving. Or this nurse who slowly realizes this is who we've been waiting for. Now you're actually seeing they're like, oh, you exist. You're in the world. You're going to bring about our salvation because we're the empty man cult, basically. Like, so that's I, endless. I think all this, quote unquote. Yeah. So um, he then is at this hospital and he – the one of the things the nurse reveals through this is that they found this guy in the Himalayas 23 years ago or whatever it was, right? And so you're like, oh, shit. There's, <laughs> this is the guy. Yeah. They found him and he's been sitting in this pose and then he goes into the room and that's when Amanda all of a sudden appears. Like, you know, essentially is like kind of walks in behind her and is like uh, – and starts explaining everything and says, yep, we're uh, – basically, there's the – there's we've already kind of talked about this, that like there's these people that become the vessels for the empty man. Um, but that only happens – sometimes it takes 500 years until the empty man transfers from one vessel to another. So knowing that we didn't have much time left with this vessel, we started working to – Excuse me. Um, we started to build our own empty man. We built a tulpa and you are that tulpa. And we tried a bunch of different incarnations of this. Looking back to when he was investigating the cabin and stuff like that, we saw different manifestations, different versions of the tulpas they tried to create. But they never quite worked as an antenna because they didn't get the right formulation. Too happy, too carefree, not enough stuff to that he had enough conflict within him. And with you – we finally figured out the perfect combination, and I, I help, I help build you your, yourself. I put a lot of uh, my life into it. I like had you sleep with my mother, like all these other things that she put it. She was like adamant of this. He's like, "What are you talking about?" Calls the mom, says that I found your daughter, and she goes, "What are you talking about? Who is this?" Um, again. Going back, that for your interpretation, that implies that that wasn't actually her mom. She didn't know who was there. No, it was her mom. It's that is that between what we saw, they had changed reality. Amanda had removed herself from reality. Okay, um, and I guess my interpretation is that he said, "What are you talking about?" Is because she was never missing, actually, because all that stuff was the missing stuff was fake, like the empty man on the wall. She was never missing because she was always she she was never she was never a suicidal teen the way her mom interpreted that she was missing well, also, in the sense I, that she I, I, had, also he wasn't like in the house investigating like the empty man stuff because he he wasn't again in my interpretation he wasn't in existence those were all part of the implanted memories for 
from her. Like, he never was in their house in, like, real life. So, her, her mom never thought she was missing because all of that, like, investigation into her disappearance was all part of the implantation yeah. to give him a residence. To, and so, yeah, anyways. I don't that. Um, I think you should watch this ending scene again and let me know. I'm going to watch it again, too, because now I'm curious just to be like, hmm. Because you – I thought that she – anyways. But, um, so, he – uh. Yeah, so he's like, what are you talking about? He flashes back to, like, a scene, the scene I mentioned where he's, like, runs into the summoning circle. And then he also, like, has this scene where he, like, has essentially, like, flashes back to him being in this chair. And then what I assume is some, like, mental interpretation of him running in an empty hallway. um, And then essentially being overtaken by this hair creature we've been seeing who kind of goes inside him. And this is when I think... Um, it has gone, it has been thematically Lovecraftian. Yeah. It's played around with nihilism, what is within reality and what was removed from reality for a while. Um, however, we've now reached more of the traditional Lovecraftian shape-shifting John Carpenter's the thing, tentacle monster body fuckery we've now reached like a more literalist interpretation of of lovecraftian yeah yeah and it it, 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 it's hard to describe because the thing moves in a sort of jagged way like a shadow creature would like the you know yeah exactly like a thing from a a j horror movie and then it becomes a faceless creature whose face is like a a, a series of masks is like melting off of it because it's inherently a um it's personality. An empty man doesn't have anything under the mask. Yeah, it's an empty man. It's a it, its personality yeah. is, is is nothing. The face is melting off. Its form itself starts to shift in a way that you would literally need to slow the movie down frame by frame to be able to describe because it's moving between different shift shapes. Mm-hmm. It has tentacles, and then it is literally morphing itself into a shape so it can go down into his gullet and into his body and fully assert control. Fully make yeah. the connection with the antenna. Yeah, it's an unfocused creature that never comes into focus, no matter like how close it's you so are. Cool. And I, I love it. It's, it's such a good. I rewound. And a good like I love cra- the scene, uh, By the way, <laughs> what I, I rewound the scene because I was like, I was like, oh, we're watching for the show. I need to be able to describe this thing, and I was like, oh, that's really cool. It uses some tricks. You can't. It's, it's really hard to describe. It's hard to describe, which is a very Lovecraftian thing, right? Like. The idea of so many, like, the Cthulhu monster was, like, it's an octopus with a rhinoceros with a, you know, whatever, but I can't really describe it. And, like, to be able to do that on film with an actual creature that we can see but have a really trouble describing it is, like, a is a feat. Like, it's an incredibly impressive feat to be able to do that. Yeah. Because even as we're describing it here – it's, just, it's kind of ineffable because, it, again, it feels like an out-of-focus monster that somehow, no matter how close it gets, never comes into full focus in a way that we could accurately describe it. So, anyways, that is kind of the – all of a sudden, the empty man has fully entered his body. He walks back into the hospital, shoots the Aaron Poole guy in the head, and he comes back out and all of the doctors and nurses are staring at him. At first, you think somewhat shocked. Oh, my god. You killed this guy, but then they all go down on their knees and he just kind of stands there. And yeah, the empty man who we know will release uh, an endless night into the world has now uh, – he's the new antenna. And I guess theoretically at this point, he probably just goes and lies in the bed and starts transmitting more. Like, Maybe he's he doesn't a more seem like he has antenna. 
because he's like, you know, maybe he's like he's a, a he's a mobile antenna. Maybe he can go bowling. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't. It's not like he immediately sits. I think that's like a fun like ending. Yeah, he doesn't like black out and go limp, right? And <laughs> and he doesn't sit into the pose like we know the other empty mans have because we know or the the other vessels or antennae have because. We saw Aaron Poole, but then we also saw the, the skeleton in the cave that was sitting in that, mm-hmm. like, in that, like, in a pose so much his ri- their ribs fused into that pose until it, till he died. So, um, yeah, we don't, like, we don't quite know what this means. Um, is it the manifestation of the actual empty man as opposed to antenna that's spreading the the message to its followers? We don't know. It's a great, I mean, a classic Lovecraftian horror uh, we don't know what happens next. We just know whatever happens next is bad. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, we don't know exactly where this is going. We just know that it's not great for James Badge Dale. I do have one quick question. And the world. And I feel – and the world. Um, I do have yeah. one quick question. Um, do you think that man- – so James Badge Dale, manifestation number 12, I believe. Do you think that manifestation number 11 um, was uh, James Badge Chip? Uh Yeah. I think there was, like, Huey, Louie, Dewey. But this, the only problem with that is that, like, I don't think they had the actors' names. <laughs> I mean, his, he's James... You need a pun with his character's name. Yeah, right? yeah. But the problem is, his character's name is a, is a Spanish word, La Sombra. Um, I mean, Shadow. And I don't really know how to make a joke about that that would have... I don't know if my level of Spanish grammar is the same level of Spanish grammar that you're at. So I just chose the actor for convenience sake. So, yeah. Thank you, Aaron, again for, for running through the plot. Um, I want to, I want to like, double back to, like, some of the beliefs of the, the Pontifex group. Um, okay. Which, uh, Pont, uh, Pontifex means bridge maker, apparently. Aaron, you, your Latin experience maybe could tell me if I'm wrong there. Um, uh, you're right. Based um, on what you just said. Isn't Pontifex also... Uh, something that that is used in like the Vatican, like in Roman. Oh yeah, Pon- I mean, Pontiff is Pope, yeah. so father. So I mean, yeah. Um, I I don't know if it was a bridge builder too. Yeah, <laughs> those Latins mm. cut you it know out. The lat the Latins <laughs> the Latins. <laughs> you of course are referring to Italians here. <laughs> speaker speaker of Latin. <laughs> um, but yeah, the the Pontifex Institute dash Society. What's kind of interesting is they switch back and forth between society and institute. I'm not sure if there's anything going on there. If that's just like we're an institute when we want to be a science organization. We're a society when we're just a group of intellectuals getting together. Yeah, they got a lot of things going on. Which is what which is what Scientology does, right? Um, which is yeah. they're like they're like oh yeah. we're sometimes just, they're a church. Sometimes there's science institute. Yeah. yeah, sometimes we're a research institute. Therapy. Cutting-edge technology to make your life better, and sometimes it's um, a religion or a group. So, um, Pontifex was created to feed the noosphere, noosphere enough to generate the necessary manifesting energy for a tulpa and James. So, like, they've literally created a cult because every single person channeling their energy sort of towards this could create the, 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 the tulpa they need, right? Um, yeah. So... I want to point your attention to something that people make fun of in this movie, um, which I also think is very funny. Not interested. Did you catch the name of the high school? Uh, no. Uh, it's a uh, Jacques Der- Derrida uh, High School, um, who's a philosopher, um, who one of, one of his um, prominent um, 
schools, I would say, that he falls under is uh, deconstructionism. Um, and that whole Stephen Root speech is deconstructionism. Like, it's essentially mm-hmm. challenging uh, set notions, set ideas, breaking them apart, breaking apart binaries that, that the, the user or the speaker sees as false um, so that you can rebuild from there. And, like, deconstructionism is not necessarily nihilistic. It's also not necessarily, like, evil. Because, um, like... Camus also talked about, like, he was a nihilist, and he talked about, like, how, like, oh, yeah, because the world has no... Well, he was an existentialist. Yeah, but he would say, like, because the world has no inherent meaning, we can build our own meaning from it. It's actually something very optimistic, which I think sort of mirrors my own personal beliefs. Um, Yeah. And I feel like this movie actually has, like, a a modern reading, like, to what's happening in the modern moment that, like is very telling to me and also connects to another part of my personality that I, I think is why I love these cosmic horror movies. So, uh, Dorita, the, 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 the deconstructionist sort of, um, mode is, you know, challenging basic ideas, breaking them into their constituent parts and sort of saying like challenging, like, why do we value this versus this? And why do, um, why do we make these these false binaries in our life when these things actually have more in common than we think? And there, there's actually perhaps a nothing is different and everything is the same sort of yeah. sort of approach. Uh, that is something that obviously, like a lot of cults use, <laughs> a lot of religious yeah. movements that turn into cults. Fascists do this; they start to challenge your basic beliefs. Um, yeah. X people. We uh, talked about that last week with uh, John's character yes. from There's Something Something in Dessert. It is interesting yeah. that this it's all it's also I mean it's also prevalent in the in the Evil Dead films, right? Yeah. It's kind of Ash's thing, like good, bad, I'm the guy with the gun. Yeah. <laughs> it's good. It's, I mean it's one of the best quotes, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he uh but like the <sighs> breaking down people's uh, sort of uh, base belief set- sets is fine as long as you together collaboratively build up something that is is mutually beneficial and is like positive towards the world. But very often, like fascists and cultists, their goal is to break all that down into constituent parts and then rebuild you into an yeah. So they the concept of right right and wrong is and ethics is like is destroyed because like there well, there's no such thing like it's it's are you doing this for this or are you do like the the you need to break those things down to um or 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 replace it in a way that like obfuscates any concept of like reality yeah anymore, right so like you know like uh the common thing is like you know the people that are calling for like the trial and execution of like uh fauci like the the they are so far in a in a like he helped cause this plague and everyone knows this and he helped inject this like you know you're you're so far from whatever whatever reality and the truth is that like these people won't call themselves bad people because they're calling for the execution of this CDC director yeah. who to try to respond to an epidemic they see themselves as like this is one of the most dangerous men in America because their heads are filled with ten layers of bullshit, mm-hmm. and that they have it's it's warped reality around them. Yeah, like also and, and some of these people too much input. Yeah, yeah, and some of these people started with a deconstructionist idea of like why do we have to pay taxes, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Um, 
And, and, and the, yeah, you're right. Like that. Why does the government tell me I can't build an expansion on our house? Yeah. It starts <laughs> my with, land. It starts with something small and then fascists are able to slowly and conspiracy theorists are able to slowly turn it into something else. And cultists are able to turn it into something else. Um, Steven Root, I think when you first watch this movie, you're just like, well, for one, if you're going to hire, if you're going to make an L. Ron Hubbard kind of character. <laughs> Get Stephen Root. Philip Seymour Hoffman is dead. Next person in line, Stephen Root. Um, yeah. So him running through this sort of speech about, um, you know, I, I don't say that I'm right and you're wrong. We don't say any of those things here because everything is right and everything is wrong. So the marketplace of ideas. Refusing to draw. No censorship on Twitter.com. Yes. <laughs> and obviously this is like, this is all a thought experiment because if you're yeah. going to create a template. Comedy is legal again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now that Joe Rogan has set up his comedy institute. Oh, sorry. Comedy yeah. society in Texas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, he, he is one thing to go with like all those people I mean honestly there are so many people in our society right now who are like trying to get to the Stephen Root place yeah that he's in like the fucking Jordan Petersons and was like well first to say man you need to understand the letter M yeah. hey <laughs> well if you look back everything is actually a dragon or a knight yeah uh, but also you can rearrange those you can rearrange those letters to spell not <laughs> which of course was a thing that took our men from us because we knew that men were men <sighs> I do love some idiot kid in the back is like oh my god I don't know what he's talking about so I, I guess must devote my life to him yeah. Um, I do love the speeches by Jordan Peterson where he's like, everything is a knight, a dragon, or a princess. And then halfway through, and then halfway through, because he knows he's going nowhere, he's like, but also there's a bridge troll. And you're like, <laughs> you're not adding to the idea. You just hit a dead end and kept talking. All cultures have come up with a Mario, a Bowser, a Luigi, and a princess. The princess needs to be rescued. It's part of the culture. All right. Who do we trust the flower fire to? We don't trust it to women. And that's not because they can't handle it. They're living in the castles. They're doing better than all of us. Obviously. Now, many of us don't pursue the woman. Some of us pursue the money. And those are known as Because we've been told by society that the Bowser is against us and that we'll get hurt. And that's when you need to fight. You need to show bravery and the woke <laughs> the woke monsters of the left have told us to not fight the wo Bowser and be happy without your princess. They told us that we're not allowed to wear the Tanuki suit. Over my dead body. <laughs> I'm turning into a... St <laughs> if I can't turn into a statue, <laughs> take that, woke moralist. I'm going to stand still with a staff. Don't get me started on the shoe. <laughs> they won't let you have the shoe. Just the one level? You think that's fair? If I can't throw my hat on top of a dinosaur and ride him, then what even is the point? Why I even go on? Too, too modern and woke. I would turn into a small skeleton boy if I, that happened to me. Now tell me, have you ever played a Mario game where you play as the princess? Oh, yeah. Some of you will say some of the side games. <laughs> <laughs> oh, perhaps you sure. allowed to Sure. You'd be allowed to throw those game. out like it means anything. We're talking about mainline Mario games. <laughs> Well, if people are. I mean, that's Doctor Mario is not he, Princess Doctor Princess Peach. Here's the thing: everything like 
If you never heard Jordan Peterson, congrats. Yeah, what a, what a lucky duck you are. Also, everything that we were just doing is essentially what he says about older myths he doesn't understand. There's absolutely nothing we said there that was any dumber than what he says. But that's no, that's that's sort of modern. That's sort of modern fascist sort of right wing thinkers is they try and break down your basic concepts and work through your basic concepts and uh, try and rebuild something incredibly harmful there. And yeah. I think that there's uh, there's there's a uh, a really great moment when um, Stephen Root in this is talking about, um, do you know the word, word semantic satiation? I didn't know this until recently. That's what it's called when he's talking about where you you say your name enough times that eventually it doesn't sound like a word. It sounds like gibberish. Oh, yeah. And he's talking about how through certain techniques, we can experience nothingness, like Dadaist, absolute, like just nonsense. Um uh, you know, an absence of 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 presence, um, a nothingness. Um, by you can experience that it's something children do is, is try and deconstruct the meaning behind words and deconstruct the meaning behind anything. It's 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 something. I mean, even when I was a kid, I would be told like that these are the rules of math, and I'd be like, Nah, there's got to be a number you can multiply by zero that doesn't equal zero, right? <laughs> like, yeah, I'm gonna try all the numbers. <laughs> like in my head, and then like they've already moved on to fractions, and I'm you know two days behind um but the like you spend enough time with these charismatic figures um that like you spend enough time with these charismatic figures in this that you understand both like the appeal of it because steven root is not being like be like through getting my car cleaned you can understand humility (laughs) he's like he's like he's like all of these things that that trouble you all of these things that perturb you they don't matter all that matters is the nothingness of the the abyss and even that doesn't matter uh he's talks yeah. talks about how you you know these ideas can't even be communicated if they could be communicated they could never be understood like the, yeah just i mean that's 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 catholic dogma in a nutshell right like the three person and one god transubstantiation the whole thing is like we can describe them but it's impossible for you to understand them they're mysteries and for them they mean yeah. mysteries like only something only something the divine can understand so i can describe that there's three persons and one god it's impossible for you to understand what that means so you can't it's also the part of the reason that that exists as a concept in the, you know cults is because if you can't understand it then you can't debate it yeah Right. A, 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 yeah, absolutely. And like, oh, because you've always missed you've all you if you uh You can't you, cinema sins our faith because your understanding of it by by the limitations of your human brain is wrong. Yeah. So your debate you you saying there can't be three persons in one God is nonsense. You don't know what that means. So how could you possibly debate it's like it's a it's a manipulation tool. You say nonsense things, you say you can't understand it, and then yeah. you say your attempt to argue with me about the nonsense I said is ridiculous because you're I don't even understand yeah. it nor would I presume to so how could I discuss it yeah and I okay so I have previously in episodes talked about how uh, cosmic horror is is very appealing to me um, because of being raised Catholic um, mm. and that yeah. like this idea that there is a there's a benevolent god out there, but he's this distant controlling figure who you can only access through bureaucracy, and even then he may never respond to you. Like that's 
that has an inherent kind of cosmic horror to it. Like, oh, you can put in, you can devote your entire life to God and then never hear his voice. Like, you can spend every Oh, and maybe sp- you spilling your water actually meant to divorce your wife and go live in the woods, yeah. but you didn't get that sign, so you missed your calling. Yes. Maybe if you had prayed harder, you would have known what that meant, you yes. fucking idiot. And, and I think that this movie actually... Um, approaches like a second level of of why I love cosmic horror is now that I'm an adult who's been a non-believer um for 20 something years um the now I'm at a, I'm actually at a point in my life where um the idea of deconstructionism and sort of taking apart based beliefs and seeing like what is actually true and and basic to the universe and sort of like avoiding like um pessimistic nihilism but trying to embrace like sort of an optimistic nihilism like there is no inherent yeah. meaning to the universe so we have to create our own and seeing that as like yeah. a liberating way that the liberating thing that like Camus did um that is is makes this movie scarier for me because the idea that people could look out in the universe see nothing and say if we all put our minds together maybe we could create a connection to something and then they did find something very terrifying. And the idea that through this noosphere, this, this thought uh, bubble around the world, that we could, we could reach this next evolutionary stage through this noosphere, we could connect to something. And out there, there's this Lovecraftian God, this, this pure consuming force. And we can give ourselves over to it through the abyss, and it'll be beautiful. That is the next stage of humanity, is to give ourselves over to that. Yep. No, I, uh, yeah, it's, and again, it fits that, why it, it reminds some of people Lovecraft. It's like, this force isn't good or bad, right? Like, in the, in the, in the, in this world, it's, it's by its nature not good or bad. It is a force, and humans interact with it with a certain way that we really don't understand. They don't, like, have a big can- cannon drop as to, like, this guy's name, real name is Bob, and his goal is, is one satellite in every major city. Yeah. One satellite man in every major – like – even at the end, you don't know, is this the next iteration of the antenna or is this the man? Like, you you know, it's it's great. And one of the reasons why I really like those, you know, circling back to the beginning is like why I like those comic adaptations or the comic – not adaptations, but the comic sequels to the original series. It's like, oh, that is a reasonable think or a reasonable continuation of where this movie would go. Mm-hmm. Like – and, you know, I like that because – even though it leaves you wanting more and it obviously doesn't have the budget to start going like full scale apocalyptic, you know, end of the world stuff through like, you know, the extended version of the event horizon videotape, the implications of where all this is headed. And again, the other thing that the movie does so well and, and David Pryor is so good at, it also evokes the tone of hopelessness and sadness and like the end of the world so well through it's like fake memories and the, 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 everything that we see James Badge Dale doing in the first half of the movie where he's like just depressed and bummed and alcoholic and investigating the death through this stuff. And it's like it has like it, – it, it meets kind of the Fincher stuff too on that idea of like, you know, the seven – like seven Morgan Freeman's character where it's like, you know, is this world even worth saving? Everyone I meet is depressed and miserable and muted colors and everything like that. And like it hits that really well too. So yeah. So, yeah, I think uh, 
Yeah, it's a great movie. I'm glad we got a chance to cover it. Uh, I enjoy the spirit of debate. I mean, the, one of the fun things about this debate is like it actually doesn't change how much I like or dislike the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, because it all works really well, whether he's created at the beginning, at the beginning of day one, or in the middle of the movie. I just, I just happened to like my take of it was like, oh, this is where this is where he actually came into being. But it's not like something that actually functionally matters because the movie still works because we know at some point, either before everything we've seen or sometime in the middle we've seen, he comes into existence and fundamentally is not a real person. He's a screenwriter's fantasy. Uh, and the failed screenwriters had previous incarnations, and yeah, they did their best. So. He eventually hit a wall where he realized that everything leading up to that moment was fake to some point. And I think that the movie yeah. sort of um, challenging you and us coming up with two interpretations is actually like a strength of the movie. It's not yeah. that the mo- because. I think that one of the because for him he's trying to figure that out. You said it. You said it well. He's trying to figure out. Well, even if what you're saying is true, where did I come into this world? Because I have all these other memories, and he knows where he attended school and everything else. So, um, all of that feels real to him, and so he has to go through his own challenging experience that is essentially like self obliterating. He needs to obliterate himself. He needs to obliterate his personhood. And that includes if that includes his reason. Well, and that but that happens days. really quickly, right? Because after he gets told that he's like, no, it's not possible. He's calling on the phone, and then he kind of flashes back and gets fully consumed by the empty man, yeah. and then he shoots the previous antenna. So maybe in the director's the real cut or whatever, there's more of him like processing it, but. It's actually, I think, a strength of the movie that we don't spend – he doesn't run around the, the neighborhood for the next 30 minutes going, I'm the empty man. I'm the empty man or something like that. Like it happens really quick and the movie's over and you, you're you left with like a like a great Lovecraft interpretation, a lot of oh, holes no. to the story that you get to fill in yourself. What if this is – so this movie has a lot of commonalities with Donnie Darko. Um, my mind-fucky movie that was – a big bomb upon release. It immediately became a cult movie. Hopefully they release a director's cut. It's, I've never seen the Donnie Darko director's cut. I just know everyone hates it. Yes. So hopefully that this isn't a Donnie Darko situation where, you know, I think someday David Pryor will be able to release his director's cut. It exists somewhere. They there's there's too many boutique labels that do well, like a Shout Factory or a... Somebody will pay money for this, right? Someone will pay money to do it. I know it's I know not really Disney's thing, like something wicked this way comes. But they, but they do, I mean, they do 20th Century Fox yeah. releases places. So it's, I mean... They clearly don't give a shit about this movie. Yeah. And, and, so. and being able to basically like, hey, we're going to give a guy, we're going to spend one guy's week like gathering material and like answering questions for you. And then, you know, Scream Factory or Shout Factory comes in and <laughs> takes care of it from there. Or like maybe they'd be willing to like, yeah, a, a guy's a week of time is worth whatever your DVD sales are. Or they say, no, 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 no. Actually, like, we have we have another third, fourth streaming service that we've got planned, and this is going to be on that. Like, yeah. I don't fucking know, uh, man. Yeah. Nobody knows. Uh, yeah, put Disney it, uh, doesn't know what it's doing with Fox. Why would I know? No. Um, although they seem to have a better grasp on what the, compared to HBO Max, and now they seem like the very sane people. Oh, you just keep stuff on your platforms? Cool. Cool, guys. Uh, unlike some people. But anyway, yeah, Bride of Boogity is sticking around. Here, uh, yeah, that is Bride of Boogity, never been taken off Disney Plus, probably been watched a time. Uh, yeah, next week, though, we're doing Cabin of Curiosities. I, I'm gonna leave this as a surprise. I don't think we've finalized how many of the episodes that we're covering. 
yet. I know at we're least definitely the autopsy doing and at least the viewing. Hundred uh, percent. I think we may have time for another, but it also may be fun to figure out a time to come back and do like we're going to do more Lovecraft months. Maybe all of these, all of the Cabinet of Curiosity episodes, I think, basically qualify as Lovecraft adaptations. Basically. So we could we could we could end up doing two and then two later and stuff like that. But yeah, definitely the viewing, definitely to complete the David Pryor filmography, doing the autopsy, and I'm very excited to see both of those again because I watched them at the end of Spooktober last year when I had watched a shit ton of movies and they still stood out as a treat in in between the other hundred plus uh, okay. horror movies. So yeah, next week more spooks, more Pryor. so much for listening to we love to watch if you made it to the end hopefully you liked what you heard today and if you'd like to hear more please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch and if you can chip in a few bucks that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward uh it wasn't an implicit threat by peter he just didn't know how to say it but either way we'll continue to make more but it would be helpful uh, as we explained to our loved ones where all our money is going which is all on server space uh <laughs> If you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand. And you want to support the show. We truly, absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it, and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years uh we really do appreciate you uh with kisses and smooches peter and aaron <laughs>